When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints. I'm Jared Halverson. Welcome back to Scripture Study. The last three weeks, we have covered 150 chapters of Scripture. It's been a whirlwind tour through the Psalms, but I hope that it's been a spiritual experience for you. Yeah, there are There is so much song and and praise and gratitude and and wrestling with inner demons you name the human emotion it's somewhere in the psalms and now one of you pointed out that i had totally spaced the joseph smith translation uh, of psalms 11 and 14. thank you for reminding me of that uh, they're amazing and it deepens our understanding of those per those particular psalms because it grounds them in the second coming it's amazing. Uh, during the Joseph Smith period, so many of the hymns that early saints wrote, uh, Parley P. Pratt is one of my favorite examples of this, were so focused on the second coming. And it's amazing to think of the psalmists looking forward to that great culminating day as well. And so go back. I'm sorry I didn't, I didn't do it when we were there. But go back and make sure you study the Joseph Smith Translation uh, editions that are in the appendix. They're too big for the footnotes. That's why I missed them. I didn't look down uh, as I should have. Uh, but it, they're, they're wonderful, amazing. And again, be thinking of Second Coming and, and sing it. Sing it with all your heart. Uh, now, Psalms that we studied the last three weeks and Job the week before that, together with what we'll cover today, which is uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and yes, we're even, even going to hit on the Song of Solomon. Uh, we won't go verse by word, verse on that one, don't worry. Uh, but there are some, some beautiful passages there that we need to, we need to spend some time in. Uh, and that sums up the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Uh, it's a wonderful section, and if you had to pick a single word to associate with each of those books of wisdom literature, then for Job, it would be suffering. For Psalms, it would be praise. For Proverbs, it would be wisdom. For Ecclesiastes, it would be vanity. And for Song of Solomon, it would be love. And hopefully, as we try to wrap our heads around that, if we can associate that book with that word, then we'll have a good idea of what, of what the book is all about. And we're going to start today with the book of Proverbs. It, it, its word is wisdom. And in some ways, it is, it is the ultimate example of wisdom literature, because that's all it's trying to do, is to convey some, some words of wisdom. Uh, it's not as, as spiritual uh, as the Psalms were, if, if we had pr praise last, the last three weeks, we'd get practicality this week, okay? And, and just words of wisdom that if you want to live a good life, and, and a counsel that is eminently practical, if you ever want to sit on the porch swing with Grandpa, and him not to tell you stories, but to give you words of advice, well, sit down with the writer of Proverbs. Uh, most, uh, for, throughout history, it's typically been attributed to King Solomon, and who better to give us the wisdom of the ages than Solomon? Much of it, I'm sure, was written by others as well. Uh, but to understand, well, I'll put it this way. For me, perhaps the best example of what this book is all about is if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof. And good old Tevye, who's wandering around, uh, and he always seems to say, 
as the good book says, and then he'll quote something that the good book never said. <laughs> but it sounds biblical uh, because it's words of wisdom. And so he'll say things like, as the good book says, if you spit in the air, it lands in your face. That's nowhere in the Hebrew Bible. But it is pretty good counsel. So don't spit in the air, okay? Uh, and so we are going to be spending a lot of time in things that the good book actually does say. But they're along the lines of what Tevye gave us as far as those words of wisdom are concerned. And if your grandpa on the porch swing, or if your mom or dad has ever said things like this, then you're well prepared for a study of the book of Proverbs. Here's a few. Two wrongs don't make a right. Did you ever hear that? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Better late than never. The early bird catches the worm. Never look a gift horse in the mouth. You can't judge a book by its cover. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Or the one my dad told me all the time growing up. Don't sweat the small stuff. Now, each of those could be a lesson of their own. Uh, and some of them need explanation. Uh, if you told it, if you, ever have, if you ever use one of these old sayings, these adages uh, on your kids, and they look at you quizzically, just like, wait, what? Then you know, okay, that one makes sense to you, but it needs some explaining for the rising generation. Like not looking a gift horse in the mouth. That would have made perfect sense to the, for the days of where people bought horses or gave horses in that case. Uh, but since we don't typically do much of that anymore, that's one that's, that needs an explanation. And we're going to see some of that in, in what we see today. Some of them are straightforward and self-explanatory. Some of them, in fact, are the, the ancient Jewish equivalent of some of the Proverbs that we still say today in different terms. Others uh, are based in cultural understandings, and we'll need a little help unpacking those. But what's beautiful about it is Every nation seems to have its own store of Proverbs, its own store of wise sayings based on culture and, and normal life. Here's a few that I found online that I thought were fascinating. Here's one from Kenya. When elephants fight, it is the grass that gets hurt. Now, I don't know how many Kenyans are listening in or how many of us have actually spent time around elephants, but I think that one makes sense when you picture it in your mind. Here's one from Sweden. The pillow is the best advisor. Hmm. We often say things like, well, let's sleep on it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to let some time pass and, and give myself some perspective and I'll, I'll sleep on it and get, and get back to you in the morning. Well, that's, that's what the Swedes were suggesting. Here's an interesting one from, the, from Japan. A frog in a well does not know the great sea. Hmm. Interesting. Do we get a little myopic in our own circumstances? Or from Turkey. If the world flooded, it wouldn't matter to the duck. <laughs> okay. Iceland, empty barrels make the most noise. Oh, that's an interesting one that I can think of a few people uh, uh, associated with that. Ethiopia, when spider webs unite, they can tie up a lion. That's a great phrase. From Poland, the egg thinks it's smarter than the hen. Some of you parents raising teenagers might uh, want to commit that Polish proverb to memory. Uh, Norway, the bear and the bear hunter have different opinions. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, or from Italy, he who has a head of wax must not walk in the sun. Hmm, as the good book says, right? Or one of my favorites from Brazil, a dog bitten by a snake is afraid of sausages. 
<laughs> that one, uh, yeah, I guess that would make sense. Okay. Uh, anyway, every culture seems to have those kinds of proverbial sayings. Uh, and so we're going to spend our time today, uh, this first half at least, in the proverbial wisdom of ancient Israel. So there's not going to be a, a storyline here. There's not going to be a plot that we're going to have to follow. Uh, in fact, when I used to teach the book of Proverbs in seminary, I would typically do it, we would have a game of proverbial jeopardy. And there were enough themes that run throughout the book of, of Proverbs. Wisdom is a huge one. It runs throughout. Uh, other ones like honesty or morality. Uh, there's uh, interesting ones on women. Uh, the, the, the boys always loved those ones. Uh, but it's not just that it's, it's not gender specific. Flip it around and if, if some, of pro some of these Proverbs are, are men shaking their heads at women, it's equally true of women shaking their heads at men. Uh, and then we would just play, uh, we would play proverbial jeopardy. And the students would say, oh, can I have uh, wisdom for 300, Alex? Uh, and we'd look at that one, and I'd share a proverb about wisdom, and they would have to explain it, uh, with or without an, a, a, a question phrase. <laughs> okay? But uh, it was an interesting way for the students to wrap their heads around, oh, okay, yeah, th this is making sense. Once I can unpack or, or um, try to understand what it is that they're saying, these really are wise words worth following. And so we're going to play a long game of proverbial jeopardy today. And it's not going to be thematic. We're just going to go chapter by chapter like we're used to. But let's start in Proverbs chapter 1. And we're going to read most of the beginning of it to try to get into the, the flow and into the spirit of what these Proverbs convey. So verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Again, he was most famous for his wisdom, so he's a good one to assign these to. To know wisdom and instruction to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity. Think about that list. All of those things require great wisdom. How can we be just in every circumstance? Think of Solomon with those two women fighting over the child. Uh, how to be fair to all concerned. There's equity. How to judge properly in every single circumstance. Yeah, we, <laughs> we need wisdom for that. To give subtlety, which we could say prudence, to the simple. Uh, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. Those three verses, 2, 3, and 4, have about as many synonyms as you could ask for to describe what we'll be studying in the book of Proverbs. Then verse 5 and 6, A wise man will hear and will increase learning. A, a man of understanding will attain unto wise counsels. So it's good that we're going to be spending our time in, these in this book today. To understand a proverb and the interpretation the words of the wise and their dark sayings. Other translations of that same verse use words like parables, riddles, clever sayings, figures of speech, enigmas. Those are all great words for those dark sayings that often require some interpretation on our part. So hopefully we'll be able to, to count on some of that today to make sense of this, this wonderful literature. Verse 7, it really begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, I, don't, I can't think of a better way to really introduce the kinds of pithy sayings that we're going to find in the book of Proverbs. This one is, is phrased in a way that you will see so often, it becomes kind of the, the, the main model or the general pattern that most Proverbs tend to follow. It will say something positive and then compare it to something negative. 
in case it didn't make total sense the first half, then compare it to the second half and then it's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I want to stay on the first half. And the conjunction that connects the two is the word but. And, and in so many of the chapters, almost every verse has a but right in the middle to compare these two halves. So there in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the good half. Wow, it's the beginning of knowledge. No wonder it's coming here at the beginning of Proverbs. If you really want to gain wisdom, then the way it begins is to fear the Lord, to reverence Him, to honor Him, because He's the source of all real wisdom. Uh, you thought Solomon was, was wise. He's nothing compared to the wisdom of an omniscient Father in heaven. And so if we really want to begin to gain real knowledge and understanding of how the world works and how we ought to navigate life within it, then turn to the Lord. It's going to come from Him. Remember, that was Solomon's initial prayer. I don't need riches. I don't care for long life. I don't, I'm not worried about my enemies. I, I've been given the responsibility to, <laughs> to lead a people like the sands of the sea. And so I will need wisdom to meet their every need along with justice and judgment and equity and understanding and instruction and everything else we saw at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, it, it, and he turned to the Lord to receive it. So what a perfect way to begin our study. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's where it's got to begin. But, let's compare it to the, the other half, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So I guess we'll get to pick which one we'll be today. Are we going to be the wise that turn to the Lord for instruction, or are we going to be foolish and despise it, thinking we know of ourselves? Now, from here on out, I'm going to be jumping all over chapters, kind of skipping rocks through it, so I just hit the ones that I found most uh, either in need of explanation or some that, are, that don't need much explanation, but just, oh, those are the ones we really need to commit to memory or, or put into practice in our lives. So we're going to start in verse 8 of Proverbs 1. My son, and interesting that we'll see many Proverbs today that put things in terms of my son or ye children, this idea of helping the rising generation gain some wisdom of their own. Uh, the old tend to have much more wisdom than the young because they, they've learned through life. And so my son, here's my counsel for you. Hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. This is relational wisdom. This is a loving set of parents that are trying to help their children grow up in God. And think of that with capital P and not just lowercase. A father and mother in heaven. We will see her today. Of all the places in scripture, uh, there's a, a chapter in Proverbs that gives us an insight into mother in heaven that is absolutely breathtaking. Uh, and so keep an eye out for that. But from father and mother passing down the wisdom of the ages so that we children can grow up in them. I mean, in a way, that's the way the Book of Mormon begins. Very first verse, right? I, Nephi, have him been born of goodly parents. Thank you for the wisdom you passed down, Lehi and Sariah, mom and dad and mom, uh, to say that my father taught me somewhat in all his learning. I may not get everything from him. That's the somewhat. But he did teach me a little bit of everything that he knew. And we're going to see that in this book as well. The next few verses, he warns against associating with evildoers. That's, that would be among the foolish. And then he says in verse 17, here's his words of wisdom. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. Now, that one you got to think for a minute. 
If the bird is sitting there on the branch watching you lay out the net, yeah, it's probably going to be a, <laughs> a little harder for you to catch it because it's aware of what you're trying to do. That's, that's a great uh, pithy proverb. And so as we think about it in our own life, am I, how aware am I of the snares that are being set by my adversaries? I think too often we kind of go blindly through life not aware of what we're up against. Or how about this counsel in 22 and 23? It's not a pithy proverb like we saw about the bird and the net, but it is some great advice. He says, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning. And fools hate knowledge. How long, how long is it going to be before you start paying attention to what I'm about to, to teach you? We're only 22 verses into this book, and we've got a long, a long ways to go. So I hope that you're open to it. He says, Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. And that's a good way to introduce this book of Proverbs as well. Don't tire of them. Don't hate knowledge. Because the things that I'm going to convey, especially if the Spirit is poured out upon you so that they make sense and they are infused into your soul, when you realize, this is the best way to live. When you, when you study Proverbs and think, you know, life doesn't have to be as hard as I tend to make it. Maybe I have been foolish. And if I could simply be wise... Oh, much better days ahead. In, in verse 28 through 30, he then tells us how those foolish and simple will end up. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. I mean, why should I? They, they're not going to listen anyway. Uh, it's a little too little too late here. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Like I said, it's too little too late there. Uh, this is, you made your bed, so now you get to lie in it. Uh, I don't mean, I hate to say I told you so, but mm, I did. And so as, as he finishes chapter one, hopefully we're in the proper spirit to actually open our minds, open our hearts, and sit a spell on the porch swing with grandpa. Uh, we, we need this counsel. And if we can be wise enough to recognize our lack of wisdom, uh, if we can not despise the things that the Lord would say, including reproof, because there will be some places today, hopefully, that hurt us in a good way, uh, that, that it give us a little twinge of guilt or prick the conscience and realize, ah, that, that's advice that I need to take. Keep an eye out for that. Those will be the most important Proverbs that we study. Let's turn to chapter 2, though. And just uh, one passage to bring up in this chapter. Starting in verse 2, So that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom. So again, if, it's, if, it's, if you're hard of hearing, just incline. Lean over a little closer. Listen for it. Even in the most unlikely of places. Apply thine heart to understanding. So it's not just ear, it's heart engaged as well. Strive to make sense of the things that we hear. Master the principles. Don't just memorize the saying, but put it into practice. He goes on, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. 
I love the way he puts that. Again, introductory proverb, trying to prepare us for the rest of this book. How badly do you want it? What price are you willing to pay to gain the wisdom and knowledge and understanding that you say you want? Is it worth spending some time in Scripture? Is it worth having conversations with those that have gone before? There's a wonderful old story of Socrates, famous for his wisdom. He would have been the Solomon of ancient Greece. And a young man went to Socrates and said, I want to, I want to know what you know. I want to be as wise as you are. And Socrates said, okay, well, let's go head down to the beach. And so he did and waded into the water and took the young man, according to the story, and put him under the water, held his head down below the surface until the young man started to thrash and, and try to come up for air. And Socrates just held him down to the point of almost drowning him. When, they, when he finally let him go and the young man came up gasping for air, wondering what on earth, you're, you're not teaching me, you're trying to kill me. What's going on? And Socrates wisely asked him, what were you thinking about when you were down under the water? What did you want? Well, air, obviously. Anything else on your list? <laughs> no. Well, when you desire wisdom to the same degree of intensity that you desired air, then come back and see me. In fact, you might not need to see me at all. You will find ways to gain that kind of knowledge. Again, if, if you value it like silver and search for it like a hidden treasure, because it is, seek and ye shall find. That's what it boils down to. And so let's seek in the chapters that lie ahead the wisdom that can come from God. Proverbs 3, verse 1. My son... Forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. These really are the wisest ways to live. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus will say. And so here's the way of wisdom. If, I love his list. Length of days, long life, peace. All of those things will come as we live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about the word of wisdom, for example, revealed to Joseph Smith long before medical expertise could back it up. And yet it has. When President Hinckley was interviewed on 60 Minutes, I believe, uh, he brought up a, a study done by UCLA that discovered that Latter-day Saints, on average, live like, like an extra 10 years of life. And to think about what the word of wisdom allows, talk about long life, it's there. As my wife and son work with addiction recovery patients and realizing that had we been a little wiser, had we lived the gospel, we would have stayed out of the kinds of addictions that, we are, that are trapping us now. And so often it's the principles of the gospel that will help us, help us become free of that. How's that for the peace that is promised? And then length of days, that's an interesting one because it sounds like, isn't that the same as long life? Well, I suppose it could be a, a repetition. But then again, if we leave kind of overall longevity to the phrase long life and then speak of days specifically, length of days, my favorite time of day is dusk. I love sunset and the lighting and just there's something magical about it. But the problem is that it goes by so fast. If I could just extend and lengthen dusk, oh, I do it probably every day. Uh, I was in Alaska a few years ago during the summer, and you want to talk about a near eternal dusk? I was in heaven. 
Uh, it was amazing. And the days were so long and I wanted to extend them because they were so beautiful. And I think there's something to be said about the living life in a wise way that makes you want to lengthen every day because you're just enjoying living it. Think about the challenge of depression as the, as the opposite. And those that are struggling with that through no fault of their own, they don't want the day to last because then I have to be awake and dealing with these negative emotions. And no wonder depression so often leads to, I just want to sleep. Because if I can be free of that and out of my own head, uh, please shorten the day and let the night come. I mean, my day seems to feel like night anyway, so at least let the night come so I can sleep it off or sleep it away. There's, I'm not saying that depression means you're not living the gospel. That's the last thing I would imply. But there, and I'm not saying that the gospel cures clinical depression automatically. Uh, there, but I will say that, that living the principles of the gospel is the wisest way to live. That there are so many wonderful pieces of counsel and advice that will help us deal with depression if you struggle with it. Or if it's not a clinical issue for you, you will be able to avoid the kinds of non-clinical things that depress people. Uh, things like sin, things like foolishness, things like regret. So length of days, yes. Uh, I would love dusk in Alaska. <laughs> Bring it on. How about verse 3? Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. Oh, mercy and truth, there's a contrary for you. These are positive polarities, opposites that need to be kept in balance. If truth is on the, the strict side and mercy is on the more lenient, remember we talked about this in Psalms, let them kiss each other. This is a match made in heaven. Let them stay and hold on. And you hold on to them, both of them. Hold on to both mercy and truth. Bind them around your neck so they're close to the mind and on your thoughts. Put them upon the table, engrave them on the fleshy tables of the heart to feel the truth and reality of these things. I mean, if you can internalize these dual demands, I don't think there's any situation in life you won't be able to handle. In fact, it will help you live both the first and second great commandments. Truth will help you honor God and mercy will help you honor your fellow man. In fact, if you look at verse 4, there's that suggestion. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God, first great commandment, and man, second great commandment. Verse 5 and 6, one of the most famous of Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Ah, oh, such great advice. Not to trust in the arm of flesh, but to trust in God instead. Remember that very first chapter of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom. What is it? It's the fear of the Lord. Start there. Trust in Him. Don't lean to thy own understanding. Again, that idea of leaning, incline thine ear, that's lean to Him. Lean unto thine own understanding, that's lean toward you. And often when we're making a decision and we say something like, well, I'm leaning in this direction. Well, if you and God can't seem to agree on something, yeah, I would probably lean in his direction rather than yours. If it seems to be a 50-50 split, it's probably not 
Okay, so go with God and trust him. By the way, I love that, that verb because it's already acknowledging, you know he's there. Uh, you you kind of know what he wants. It's just a matter of trusting that he does know things better than we do. Sadly, we live in a day where God's existence is doubted. And so as a result, when we talk about, do you believe in God? We're not talking trust. We're just talking about, do you think he exists at all? Ontology is the study of being. And sadly, do you believe in God has become an ontological question instead of a relational one. When I say I believe in myself, that's not ontology. I'm not doubting that I exist. I'm just expressing confidence that, yeah, I can, I can do this. When I say I believe in you, I'm not trying to convince you. You really do exist. It's not an ontological question. It's a relational one. And I'm saying, you got this. You can do this. And so when I say I believe in God, I'm long past the question of does he exist. I've had enough experience to convince myself fully of God's existence. And more than his existence, his desire for a relationship with little old me. So yes, I believe in him with all my heart. I trust him as a result. I know what he's like and I know what he wants for me. And so when, when we don't seem to see eye to eye, it's myself I doubt rather than him. And I trust in him. That's where I'm leaning. And sure enough, he is directing my paths and I'm grateful for it. Verse 7 and 8, the next proverb. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health in thy navel and marrow to thy bones. That last phrase we associate with the word of wisdom in Doctrine and Covenants section 89. And yes, it does give us health in the navel and marrow in the bones. But if you think about the navel, which is so... It didn't hit me till my mission when I was reading the Doctrine and Covenants in Spanish. And when I saw the word of wisdom and it's like, a salud en el ombligo. I'm like, what's ombligo mean? I looked it up I'm like, oh, the belly button. Okay, yeah, uh, you'll have a healthy belly button. I'm like, what? Did it always say that? Navel sounds... I don't know... Uh, lofty enough that I don't associate it with my belly button. Health in the navel just sound, it kind of rolls off the tongue. Marrow in the bones. Uh, do we actually think about the specific body part we're dealing with? I think that's the key. It's not just a healthy belly button, but think about when you were in the womb and your entire body was blessed through the umbilical cord. Every good gift that mother had to send you came through the navel. And so health in the navel is a blessing to the whole body. Marrow in the bones, to think about what bone marrow does and how it blesses and, and keeps healthy the whole body. White blood cells. To think about what, what the Lord is suggesting there in the word of wisdom, DNC 89. Well, same phrase here in a, a, a book that from start to finish is dedicated to words of wisdom. Well, your entire body and soul will be blessed if you will live according to this counsel. So please be wise. God knows what he's talking about. Verse 9 and 10, honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. I'm grateful that the Lord gives us counsel, not just for the, for the spiritual aspects of our life, but for the temporal ones as well. And like we saw in Doctrine and Covenants 29, there's nothing purely temporal for God anyway. It's all spiritual to him. 
So though I said we went from praise to practicality when we went from Psalms to Proverbs, well, here's some, it's, it's still spiritual as far as God is concerned. So how do you spiritually live your temporal life? Honor God. In fact, be more like him. Turn your temporality into spirituality and honor the Lord with your substance. The first fruits, fruits of thine increase, that was the, there was a feast of first fruits. There was an offering of first fruits that was given to God at the temple. Well, do we do the same? Do we carve out our 10% tithing from the, from the beginning of our paycheck? And, and again, that doesn't have to be chronological, but is that our priority? The first thing is we think, how can I bless God with the things that he has blessed me with? And how can I bless others as well? And so honoring the Lord with our substance and the irony or the beautiful promise, God will bless you and multiply the 90% you have left. He'll, he'll bless and multiply whatever you have to more than compensate for your so-called sacrifice, which ends up looking more like an investment when all is said and done. Amazing rate of return. In verse 11 and 12, how's this one? My son... Despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a son, the father in whom he delighteth. Oh, please understand that being chastised by God is a sign of his belief in you. It'd be easier, I think as a parent, I get this, that I... I keep hounding my kids on certain things or, well, hounding is not the right way to do it. Uh, but I do correct and I do coach and I do teach my children because I believe in them. And I see the big picture and I play the long game and I, I want them to turn out and I know that they can. They are. I'm grateful for that. But God is the same with us. I would be more concerned if I was playing a sport and my coach never said anything, never gave me any feedback. Because then I'm kind of an out of sight, out of, mi out of mind. It's like he's thinking, ah, he's probably not going to play much anyway, so just let him do his thing, and I'm not going to invest much attention in his improvement. It's amazing how invested God is in our progress. And so be open to his, chat, to his chastening. He's doing it as a loving father. And as we saw in Dr. Covenants 121, Every time he reproves us with sharpness, he pours out additional love afterwards so that we know that he wasn't doing this out of anger, but out of, out of kindness, out of a recognition of our glorious potential. We ought to do the same. Or the last one I'll share from Proverbs 3, verse 27. Withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. You ever heard the saying, never suppress a generous thought? Or never withhold a compliment when you can give one? There's the better angels of our nature, as Abraham Lincoln described it. And when you just, you notice something positive about someone, say it. Someone does something, a kind thing, express gratitude. Acknowledge things. We, we saw this chapter begin with, Acknowledge God in all of, of these things and he'll direct thy paths. Well, we end with acknowledge others. And when you can do someone some good, when you're mowing your lawn and you see that the neighbors could use a trim, why not do it? Uh, if it's in your power 
And that's a great phrase. And if it's in the power of thine hand, uh, King Benjamin said, don't run faster than you have strength in the context of giving to the poor, doing good to others. When you're truly converted, you want to go above and beyond in that. And to the point that, you, that God has to rein you in. Well, most of us don't need us don't need to be reined in. We need to be pushed forward. And so great advice. Don't withhold good if you can give it. Turning the page to chapter 4, look at verse 5 through 8. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. We keep seeing incline, well here's decline. Which way are you leaning? Don't decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. Now, he seems to say the same thing twice with similar imagery. And this one is worth repeating. What are we after? What are we seeking in life? Get wisdom, get understanding. Let me say that again. In all thy getting, thinking back to the temporal side, while you're getting all of that, oh, I hope that you're getting what matters infinitely more getting this kind of wisdom. But then the other part that is repeated twice also is this gendered language about uh, loving her, embracing her. And if you do, then what will she do? She'll keep thee, she'll promote thee, she'll bless thee. Sounds like an amazing woman. Who are we talking about? Well, Lady Wisdom, uh, the woman of understanding. I love that these words are gendered female. Too often in our day, we gender rationality male and emotionality female. There's some reason for that. Uh, however, you better not separate or uncouple that contrary to the point that you think that men don't feel or women don't think, because neither one is correct. But to see the way, I mean, justice and mercy is a good one. The Book of Mormon does this explicitly even in the English, that justice is gendered male and mercy is gendered female. And there's some good reason behind that as well. Here, to gender wisdom and understanding in the feminine, I think is beautiful. If you think about relationships, and I, I need to have a relationship with wisdom and understanding so that it really does direct my paths. If I love her, I guess this is, if he's writing primarily to a male audience, for example, then of course he's going to gender what they should be seeking in the feminine, uh, telling these men, you want to fall in love with someone worth, uh, worth marrying? Ah, marry wisdom. Love her, embrace her, and she will bless you forever. This needs to be an eternal companionship. Fast forward to verse 19, and what's the opposite? The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. That's a great analogy. What's wickedness look like? Well, it looks like darkness. Oh, in fact, it looks like mists of darkness. Thank you, Lehi's Green. And here we are stumbling around. If it weren't for the iron rod, who knows what we would trip up over. And that's what I love about the way he puts it. They know not at what they stumble. It's amazing that well, like we saw in the earlier proverb, that is the bird watching to see the, the net being laid out before them? 
Are we aware of it? Or are we living wickedly? No wisdom illuminating our path to the point that we are blindly stumbling around and we don't even see the tripwires that the adversary has set up for us. It would be so frustrating to walk a path and trip every time you do it. And you, you can't figure out why. And you have no idea what you're stumbling over. We need to turn to God's wisdom, his instruction. The words of prophets, those watchmen on the tower. The words of scripture that are a lamp unto our feet. Ah, then we won't trip up over things. In Proverbs 5, here's an interesting one. This would go under, oh, the, the, whenever we played Proverbial Jeopardy in seminary, the boys loved. I think we, we maxed out uh, women in Proverbs before any other topic. Because, like, okay, women for 100, women for 200, women for 300. Well, here's women for 100. But again, don't get tripped up over the gender here. Uh, men have, have challenges with women and women have challenges with men. And, and either way, here's one of those challenges. Proverbs 5, 3 through 6. For the lips of a strange woman drop as an honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldst ponder the path of life, other translations say, she gives no thought to the way of life. That makes more sense. Her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Now, again, like I said, this is gendered language. But if it's a male audience he's writing to, then of course he's going to warn them about strange women. And strange, he means foreign. Now, if this indeed comes from Solomon, he needed to take his own advice. Or maybe this is written later as he starts to realize, yes, 700 wives and 300 concubines, um, among whom most are strange women, foreign marriages of uh, diplomacy and trade. Ah, that wasn't very wise of me now, was it? How did I get sucked into this? Well, <laughs> their lips were like honey and their words were like oil. Think about sin. And, and again, you don't have to gender it, but the idea of being seduced by it, that's why gendering this is actually valuable. That to see the, the seductive nature of sin, that Satan doesn't want to lay out the net while you're watching. And so instead, he's going to trick you into being tempted so that he can ensnare you in sin. He is, he, he is smooth as oil. He is sweet as honey. And yet, what happens if we succumb to those temptations? What is it, where does the road lead? Death and hell. Spiritual death, physical death. Uh, that's, those are the two monsters that Jacob warned us about in 2 Nephi chapter 9. And the struggle? Her ways are movable that thou canst not know them. That, that's insightful. It's interesting how changeable the world's ways can be. And if he can't get you to fall off one side of the straight and narrow, then he'll trick you into falling off the other. That's why contraries are so important. Balance is, is required. Oh, so which way are you headed? Which woman would you rather marry? Zion or Babylon? Which woman would you rather be raised by? Christ as your father and the church as your mother? Or Satan as your father and the world as your mother? Take your pick.
choice is yours. Another one in Proverbs 5 that I thought was interesting is verse 15. Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Remember back in Deuteronomy and again in Joshua, warning from Moses and Joshua saying, you're going to go into the promised land and live in the city you didn't build? And you know, eat from vineyards you didn't plant? And yes, drink from wells you didn't dig? Well, here's the opposite. Because the concern there was, you're going to forget God because you didn't have to work for anything. Okay? Uh, here, work for it. Dig your own well. Fill your own cistern. On the one hand, you'll know what went into it, and you'll be able to trust it a little bit more because you're the one that put in the work. And to be able to understand that as far as your testimony is concerned, your faith is concerned, yes, we need to seek living waters, but out of a cistern we have cut out for ourselves. What was one of the first phrases from Joseph Smith when he came home from the sacred grove? Mother, I have learned for myself. And when we can stand on our own two feet independently, then we are drinking running water out of our very own well. We won't be reliant or dependent on someone else. And since their discipleship is not guaranteed, yeah, it's better to, to have root in yourself, as is said in the parable of the, of the sower, uh, rather than relying upon somebody else's faith or testimony. That might not always be there for you. Tap into God directly. He will always be there for you. Proverbs 6 comes next. And interesting one in, in verse 6, we're going to learn something from the animal kingdom. An insect in this, uh, in this case. Verse 6, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. If you're a fan of Aesop's fables, which would be wisdom literature from ancient Greece, you know about the, the ant and the grasshopper. And the grasshopper just wants to live it up and uh, it'll take care of itself and it doesn't. Whereas the ant is laboring, is providing meat in the summer, gathering her food in the harvest so that the ants can make it through times of scarcity. Uh, Joseph in Egypt was a good ant and made sure that the seven years of plenty would prepare them to survive the seven years of famine. Are we that wise? Are we, are we smarter than a bug, <laughs> than an insect? Uh, because it would behoove us to watch the ant, and no guide, no overseer, no ruler needed. We do have a guide, overseer, and ruler. We would be wise to listen to his counsel. Verse 9, here's a different one. How long wilt thou sleep? O sluggard, when wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Oh, yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. Oh, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Notice the end there. One that travels, as long as he keeps walking, what's eventually going to happen? He's going to arrive at his destination. Or the other one, an armed man. Well, if he's armed, then of course he's going to accomplish his objective. Well, who's the armed man in this case? Who's the traveler? It's poverty. And where's poverty headed? Straight to you. If you don't get up and actually do something to prepare for him. 
if you're not working like the ant, <laughs> if you're not the busy bee, then it's just a matter of time that you'll be struggling. And so, yes, don't run faster than you have strength. Uh, and yes, get, your, get the, um, the right amount of sleep. But if it's a matter of, oh, just a little more, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. I love the way he dramatizes this. It's almost like he's just coaxing you to stay. Oh, my bed and pillow seem to do that to me every morning. And so ignore it. Get up and be wise. Do something. Uh, the next little section, he talks about seven sins. Now, we famously know of the seven deadly sins. That's a phrase that's common. Uh, but it's not these. The seven deadly sins were a list that were created by a pope uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, and it's not the same list that we see here in Proverbs. But those ones are, are worth avoiding as well. Uh, the list here, though, starting in 16 and keep going through 19. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And that's a, a way of phrasing things that comes up every so often in Scripture. If I remember correctly, Amos does it a lot. Uh, where he'll say a number and then actually, oh, let me add one more. And it's, it's kind of a literary device to suggest that they're multiplying as we speak. There are six things that I say, oh, well, what time? a seventh just showed up. Great. We're getting worse as we go. Uh, and so here's six, th uh, never mind, seven things. Let me list them quickly before number eight shows up. Uh, but here they are. Seven are an abomination unto him. Number one, a proud look. We've got to overcome our pride. Number two, a lying tongue. Dishonesty's got to go. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. There's our penchant for violence or anger, antipathy. Number four, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. That one could be manifest in so many ways. Again, because it's imagination. So let your mind wander. In this case, don't. Uh, but wicked imaginations. Number five, feet that be swift in running to mischief. It's a great way to describe what are we after? What are we seeking? And are we quick to do iniquity, to run into mischief? Number six, a false witness that speaketh lies. We already saw a lying tongue earlier, but is there a different nuance here? False witnesses that speak lies. And then number seven, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Again, we saw shedding innocent blood already, but there's a little twist on that one too. It's among brethren, and yet I'm trying to break them up. So it's not just me being violent against them. I want them violent against each other. Uh, discord. Those seven sins are as deadly as the list that Catholicism created later on. And they're ones that we all need to overcome. And yes, 8, 9, 10, and all the others that are on their way. Now near the end of the chapter, Proverbs 6, verse 27. This one's fascinating, especially if you have teenagers to raise and need to talk to them about the law of chastity. If you're in that situation, ask them this. Can a man take fire in his bosom? and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals, and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth in to his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. Powerful imagery regarding adultery. Hot coals under the feet, burning fire taken into the bosom. If Solomon wrote this, Solomon son of David and Bathsheba, did he know about the stories of how his parents met? Oh, 
Solomon wasn't born outside of wedlock, but he had a brother that he never got to know who was. This is tragic. And to understand the, the, the metaphor, this is fire you're taking in. So quench the very first beginnings of some kind of burning lust. That's one we have to, to overcome and fight because it will consume things. In fact, one of the most powerful quotes on this comes from Will and Ariel Durant, an incredible pair of historians. They covered, through their study of the sweep of human history, they realized that some lessons you have to turn to the past to be able to discover because people throughout time have been burned enough by experience that they've learned to know better. And they're trying to teach the rising generation who isn't old enough to have learned those things for themselves. So with that in mind, the Durants say this, a youth boiling with hormones, and boiling, there's a, a fire and heat metaphor as well. A youth boiling with hormones will wonder why he should not give full freedom to his sexual desires. But if he is unchecked by custom, morals, or laws, he may ruin his life before he matures sufficiently, sufficiently to understand that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group. I remember Elder Holland quoting that uh, in a talk he gave at BYU years and years and years ago. And then uh, that same talk that he condensed and gave to an entire church audience in General Conference, uh, 1998, October. I I'm not very good at remembered dates, but that one I remember because I just got engaged and was to be married in February of 1999. And so October of 98, with a brand new engagement, you better believe I was focused as, President, or as Elder Holland spoke of personal purity. And as he warned us all of the river of fire that must be banked and cooled. That phrase has stuck with me ever since. And when my oldest son, especially, uh, became a teenager and turned 16 and started a date, thankfully, even before that, we'd had open conversations. I, it, to me, it scares me when we, when we mention the talk. Have you had the talk with your child? Uh, the fact that that's described in the singular is a huge problem. The fact you could take, the, the thought that you could take something as complex and something as, as foundational and important, uh, something so oh, key for life, but with such oh, scary things on, on the, off the straight and narrow path, the fact you could take sexuality and sum it up in one awkward conversation that neither party wants to participate in, that's hugely problematic. So don't make it the talk. Make it the talks. And make it, normalize it enough. With each child one-on-one, -on -one, I wouldn't do this in the group. This was, we didn't have family home evenings on this, but one-on-one -on -one with each child, uh, based so it could be situation-specific and child maturity level-specific and, and what are their feelings and what are your questions and just, it, it's open. And with my oldest son, uh, we had some great, great conversations about this. And in one in particular, it was just the right moment. He had come with some questions and some things on his mind. And 
And I said, you know, there's this quote you got to hear. It's amazing. And we turned to that talk from Elder Holland, and I talked to him about the river of fire that must be banked and cooled by, by endless restraint. And thankfully, because the time was right and his heart was open, his heart was inclining to wisdom rather than to his own understanding, he internalized that to the point that there... That he had, he, I'll put it this way, there have been times where he's come to me and talked about sticky situations his friends have found themselves in, or just things in, in media or movies or whatever, and my son will turn to me and go, banked and cooled. And that's become the, the code word, the phrase to remind him of virtue and its value of the need for, for morality and holding on to it with both hands. Uh, it's, I, lo I love it when my son just will turn to me with a little twinkle in his eye and go, banked and cooled. Like, that, that person's not banking and cooling. Or th that's, that's the phrase. And so beware about fire in the bosom. Beware of hot coals beneath the feet. They will consume the individual and the group if they're not banked and cooled by those hundred restraints. Once a child, once a teenager understands that, the law of chastity will be a protection that they're grateful for rather than a rule that annoys them. Turn to Proverbs 7, and we're back to the gendering of wisdom. Verse 4, Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister. Call understanding thy kinswoman, we want them to be related to you, because if they are, they'll be able to do the next. That they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger that flattereth with her words. That's all that honey and oil we saw in the previous proverb. These strange women trying to lead us away, well, pick, pick which women you're going to associate with. And women of wisdom, sisters of understanding, Oh, if you're tied to them tightly enough, they will keep you from wandering down the ways of strange women out there, strange worldly wisdom. In verse 24, later in the chapter, Hearken unto me now therefore, O ye children. Again, that sense of how inexperienced his audience is. We don't know any better, and so it's, we'd be wise to listen to the, the wisdom of our elders. Attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths, for she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Are we starting to see this theme develop in this book? Death and hell, there it is again. Uh, wisdom versus worldly ways. And it's the the seductive nature of those sins, the tantalization of temptation. And even if you're strong, strong to the point of thinking, oh, I would never fall to that, be careful, especially if you haven't seen the adversary lay out the net. Because even strong men, many of them, again, is Solomon thinking of David, many strong men have been slain by her. And Solomon you'll be one of them yourself as you got pulled away by these strange women and their stranger gods. Compare all of that to chapter 8 and this is where we meet 
the ultimate gendering of wisdom to the point of personifying her as a mother in heaven. Now, some can, would simply leave that as metaphor, as figurative language. And so if we're going to gender uh, wisdom, fine. Let's exalt her at the same time. And exalted wisdom, which we will name Sophia, there's the Greek term for wisdom, uh, feminine. And so Sophia then becomes the, the embodiment of wisdom. And it's one that you want to claim as a sister, or better yet, marry as a spouse. This is a match made in heaven. But again, thankfully, because our theology allows us to understand the reality of a mother in heaven, rather than just a metaphoric mother, a literal one, truth is wisdom, truth eternal tells me I have a mother there. Well, Proverbs chapter 8 is a message from her. Uh, a message from mother wisdom. And if we can allow this description of Sophia, we don't know the name of our mother in heaven, but if we can, if we can see Sophia in this case as emblematic of her, then I think we'll come to understand her a little bit better. And, and talking about, talk about third shelf revelations yet to come. A greater understanding of our, our Heavenly Mother is one I can't wait to receive. Uh, though I'm patient in the meantime, until the Lord chooses to re reveal it. We're going to read a lot of Proverbs 8. It's worth it. Look at verse 1. Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? Wisdom is calling to you. Will you hear her? Will you respond? Will you come? This is what she says, verse 10. Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. We'll see by Proverbs 31, our final proverb chapter, which is also focused on women. We'll see rubies appear in that chapter as well. That virtue is better than rubies. And here, wisdom is better than rubies as well. Put virtue and wisdom together, and that's a match, in, a match made in heaven as well. And now Solomon would know that because he has plenty of both. He's got plenty of gold and plenty of silver and plenty of rubies, but he valued wisdom over it all. So should we. Verse 17 is next. I love them that love me, Mother Wisdom would say, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. Do we love wisdom like that? Enough to defer to her whenever we have to make a choice? Do we realize that the riches that she offers us are durable? It's a great word. Where moth and rust doth not corrupt. Oh, that's wisdom in heaven. And if we can have it descend to guide us on earth, and then it will lead us back home at last. Then verse 22. And this is where Mother Wisdom really begins to speak about herself. This is where Sophia introduces herself to her would-be children. If we'll but choose her. And again, if we can think about Father in Heaven sealed to Mother in Heaven. And the two of them collectively behind creation and the presentation of the plan of salvation 
behind the first lessons we received in our premortal world of spirits. That's what section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants lets us know. Then notice this introduction, verse 22. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. This is wisdom as God's partner in premortality. Here's Sophia right alongside Elohim. I was set up from everlasting, she says, from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. It's almost like she's walking us through the days of creation and we see sea divided from land. We see the mountains emerge. But even before that, if you will rewind the tape from before the foundation of the world, like I said, when the plan was presented, who else was there among those noble and great ones that Abraham was shown in vision? She was there. Wisdom was there. And again, I know so many uh, commentators throughout history have simply let this remain on the figurative level. And of course, God had wisdom before the earth was created because God is wise and eternally so. So yes, this could just be a, an amazing kind of poetic image of a wise father. But our, again, our theology allows it to be so much more than that. The Lord possessed me. Well, better than possess. He partnered with me. And I was his and he was mine. And I love them that love me. Well, the father loves her and she loves the father. And together, these are parents trying to raise their children to be noble and great like them. In verse 26, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth. Again, this is our quick review of creation itself all of which is preceded by the presence of wisdom herself. It actually makes me think of Job. And remember those chapters when God machine gun fired all those questions at him, none of which Job could answer? What did they all revolve around? Creation. And remember when he said it early on, where were you when I planned all of this? Where were you when the sons of God shouted for joy, when the morning stars sang together, when all of my children rejoiced in the plan I presented? Where were you? Well, this, if you couple those chapters from Job with Proverbs chapter 8, who else was there among the sons of God and the morning stars? Well, the ultimate morning star herself, Mother Wisdom. And... It's almost like the Lord is, again, taking, if channel Job through Proverbs 8, and it's as if God is saying, Job, don't you remember who else was there? I'm asking, were you there? The answer is yes, though the veil has made you forget it. Uh, but who else was there? Not just the sons of God shouting, and not just the daughters of God singing, but wisdom herself was there as well.
and we're sealed. <laughs> we possess one another. We are in full partnership with one another. And so all these chapters that you've been wrestling with me and wanting to sue me for malpractice and, and call me out on my lack of, of wisdom? Are you serious, Joe? My lack of wisdom? Like, I don't know what I'm doing? The universe works. Creation is accomplished. Whether or not you understand its inner workings. I'm sealed to wisdom. So don't question my possession of it. <laughs> don't, don't wonder or worry that I don't know what I'm doing because I am sealed, eternally sealed to understanding. If Job can trust his heavenly parents, then life will go well for him. And the same is true for all of us. She, Mother Wisdom, goes on in verse 30. Then, in premortality, I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. I told you it was a match made in heaven. <laughs> by him, with him, daily his delight. There's never a moment where God is not wise. Never a moment where omnipotence, which I think stereotypically we would gender masculine, is not eternally sealed with omniscience, which in, at least in Proverbs 8, is gendered feminine. Now, we're proving contraries, right? And remember what uh, Harold B. Lee's daughter said, I'm always grateful my parents. I was raised by a father who was gentle beneath his firmness and a mother that was firm beneath her gentleness. They both had both halves. It wasn't just you got this and dad has this and mom has this. No, mom and dad both have each other's attributes. And that's important to understand too, eternally. But powerful, powerful phrase. If we realize, if we recognize them as an eternal pair, as co-equal, as co-eternal, our daily delight, that, that describes a, a celestial marriage if I've ever seen one. Now, after all of those verses in which she establishes her ethos, in rhetorical studies there's pathos, ethos, and logos. And, and logos is the, the, what you're trying to convey. Okay? It's your argument. It's the word. It's the truth. Uh, pathos is the feeling with which you give, uh, that you explain it. Okay? And so you're working upon the emotion if logos is working upon the mind, pathos is working upon the emotion, where does that leave ethos? Ethos is the speaker and their authority. And do I trust them at all? Do I trust in the Lord with all my heart or do I lean toward my own understanding or in my case, my own misunderstanding? Uh, well, Mother Wisdom, Sophia, has established her ethos. I've been around since before the beginning. If you believe in God, believe in me. And then... She asks us to accept her message. Verse 32. Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. If you know who I am and who I've always been, if you trust the wisdom of God, then hearken. Keep the commandments. Keep covenant. Turn to the scripture Know that God is the way, the truth, and the life. So follow the way. And trust the truth and live the life. 
and you'll come back to be with us. You'll actually come back to be like us. And that's our, been our goal from the beginning. We'll finish this chapter with verse 33 through 36. One more invitation to us all. Hear instruction and be wise and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. Can you picture that? Just eager to catch a glimpse or receive any word of instruction. For whoso findeth me findeth life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. So in that passage, wisdom and life are synonymous. And foolishness and death are synonymous as well. So when Moses says, I have set before thee life and death, wherefore choose life. The writer of Proverbs is setting before us wisdom and foolishness. Well, that should be an easy choice for us to make as well. And then the rest of this book, uh, Mother Wisdom will be teaching us. The rest of this book we will hear from her. Chapter 9, she's still personified as a woman, but this time she's doing things that typically are associated with men. She's building a house, construction, giving us a place, shelter from the elements. Then she sets the table, she sends forth her maidens, and she invites all of us to come to the feast. That seems to be more of a motherly thing to do in this case. But verse 5, come, eat of my bread the bread of life, after all. And drink of the wine which I have mingled. Now, where do we usually associate bread and wine? How oh, can you picture the learning of, of truth, the, the gaining of wisdom as a sacramental act? If the glory of God is intelligence, or, or in other words, light and truth, then gaining that kind of intelligence is a worshipful, sacramental thing. So come, take my bread and wine. In verse 8, here's an example of that wisdom. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. On the other hand, rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. That goes back to the idea of being teachable and coachable. Seek feedback from someone you trust. Ask honestly for their opinion. I used to do this with my seminary students, or my institute students, and I'd keep it anonymous so they could be brutally honest. And I'd, I'd pass out three by five cards at the end of a semester and say, on one side, will you tell me something I'm doing well so I don't change that? And on the other side, please be honest, tell me something you wish I would change since I'm not doing it that well. And I got some amazing feedback. Uh, it's a wise man that is looking for it because it will help them improve. Rebuke a wise man, wisdom says. Oh, he's going to love you for it. Okay? It lets you know, by the way, if you flip it around. If you, again, reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost and showing an increase of love, you don't have to do this in a mean-spirited way, and thankfully my students didn't either. But if I take that, and appreciate that feedback, then guess what I am, according to this verse. I'm wise, because I'm open to it. And yes, I love the people who give it to me. It's, it's for my benefit. How about this one in verse 17 and 18? Totally unrelated to what we just discussed, but that's okay. We're going to be jumping all over the place, right? Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. 
but he knoweth not that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Hello, that's a pretty stark ending. But think about it. Stolen water. Ooh, that's sweet. The bread you sneak away and eat in hiding in secret. Oh, that's pleasant. All right. But talk about a bad aftertaste. If that's where it leads, the depths of hell, then no thanks. Remember that great phrase back in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23? Be sure your sin will find you out. Oh, yeah, it will. You may have stolen that water and drunk it sweetly, but you'll be found out. And yes, the bread you may have eaten in secret, and it was so pleasant, but someone will ultimately know. So beware of that. Repent. In Proverbs 10, how about this one? Verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. We're going to, again, we're associating these wise sayings with him. And here's one for you. A wise son maketh a glad father. But, here's the flip side, a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. And like I said before, this is the typical form for the majority of Proverbs in ancient Israel. That's the way they would phrase things. This is good, but that is bad. So be wise enough to compare and contrast and pick the better side. This chapter is our first real example of just how frequent this form will be followed. There are 32 verses in Proverbs 10. 26 of them follow this pattern. This is good, but that is bad, so make your choice. Here's an example. Verse 7. The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? You want to be remembered for good or for evil? Or this one, 21. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. I love that one because I'm a teacher. And so the power of teaching and learning that if you are trying to live the gospel, then as you speak, the words that come out of your mouth will feed many. In fact, they will be loaves and fishes that are multiplied so that the multitudes get to feast on what you're sharing. That's what wisdom's all about. That any of you that have the blessing of being able to teach, then your, your lips are feeding many. How about this one? This one follows the same form. Verse 27, the fear of the Lord prolongeth days. We saw that earlier, right? Length of days and long life. But, here's the flip side, the years of the wicked shall be shortened. That's Alaska during the winter time. Short days and really, really long nights. I, yeah, I don't know if I can go back up there during that time. Now turn the page in Proverbs 11. Here's more of these, this is good, but that is bad. 20 out of our 31 verses will follow that. And here's a handful for you. Verse 1, a false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. That one reversed it. This is bad, but this one's good. Are we honest in our dealings with our fellow man? It's a Temple Recommend interview question, right? And so do we have a just weight or a false balance? Are we trying to keep things equal and even and fair? Or are we adjusting things so it always comes out in our favor? That's not a wise way to live. Verse 13, here's some more counsel. A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Now, I'm not saying to conceal things that ought to be shared, because that's the rebuke of the righteous that you should be loved for. But in this case, what do we do with gossip when it comes to us? Does it stop in its tracks when we're the next one that's being passed on to? That, no, I'm not going to pass this one on. I'm a faithful spirit. 
and I don't want to hurt people's feelings by spreading these false rumors. On the other hand, a talebearer, they're the ones that take the gossip and, and speed it up and send it out in as many different directions as they can. And that's a problem. Verse 14, here's another problem. Where no counsel is, the people fall. But, other side, in the multitude of counselors there is safety. There is value in a multitude of counselors. I mean, in the church, we typically have at least two if we're in leadership positions, and that's good. Uh, that, that way it's an odd number, and, and how are we going to get majority rule and come to unanimity? And I need some disagreement in hopes that we can prove some contraries and get to a, a better view of the truth. Multitude of counselors. Elder ba President Ballard talks often about counseling with our councils. And again, if we're not leaning unto our own understanding, then turn to the wisdom of those around you and definitely turn to the Lord and trust in Him since He won't lead you astray ever. So good advice to take advice. Then verse 22, uh, this, is a, this is woman for 200, Alex. As a jewel of gold in a swine's snout, so is a fair woman which is without discretion. My seminary boys loved this one. But again, flip it around, and a fair man who is without discretion is no more beautiful than, than a, a jewel of gold in a swine's snout either. Uh, great visual image there, right? I mean, if you were to, it, this would be a fun one to do visually, where you have a, the camera's zoomed in, so really all you see is this golden jewel against some strange pink background. I don't know what it is, but if the, the jewel is all that captures my eye. It's amazing. I want that more than anything. Well, careful. Let's zoom out slowly. And then as you slow, slowly extend the view and start to get the big picture, what you thought was so appealing, yeah, it doesn't look quite so attractive anymore. And that's so often the case when it comes to oh, falling in love, with somebody's exterior uh, and, and you're just caught up with what you see from the beginning. But if you were to back up and get past the beautiful person or the shiny object, what are they really like down deep? And if this woman or man is without discretion, without virtue, without discernment, without wisdom, and yeah, no thanks. Yes, the jewel was beautiful. But the swine snout, that kind of did, didn't do it for me. We're moving on. In verse 24, another great piece of wisdom. There is that scattereth, and yet increaseth. And there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Now, that's not how it should work, Right? If you scatter your goods, you tend to lose out. You don't have them anymore. You've, you've given them all out, distributed too much. And on the flip side, if you withhold and, and keep it all to yourself, you know, there's Ebenezer Scrooge, then that's how you get wealthy, right? Well, the world would tell you that, but God disagrees. And as far as God is concerned, haven't you noticed some people that just keep giving, and yet somehow, I don't know how they end up with anything left for themselves, but, oh, I guess now I do. God keeps blessing them because he knows that you've, it's like you've short-circuited the pride cycle uh, and you just, you don't flip over from prosperity to 
to pride and wickedness. You just keep staying humble. You keep being generous. And God just keeps blessing you. On the flip side, that is the pride cycle personified. They hoard it all to themselves. And yet they, they keep shriveling smaller and smaller. And don't seem to have all that they've been holding on to. I think you see a similar principle in verse 25. The liberal soul shall be made fat. This is fat in a good way. And <laughs> prospered. And he that watereth shall be watered also himself. It's a great principle. If I will water others, God will water me. If I turn my hose on the neighbor's lawn, maybe God will let it rain on mine. And there's some value there. I remember once when I was teaching at the MTC, I had a district that was struggling with their Spanish. They all seem to. It's hard. And I remember one day, early on in our time together, and they were still getting to know each other as companions and as a district, and there was some struggles, some friction. And at the end of the day of class, I said to, to one missionary, um, Elder, you're struggling with Spanish, aren't you? Yeah. I said, can I, can I just guess what you probably pray for, like every time you're on your knees? And he said, like, go for it. I said, you're probably praying that God will help you with your Spanish. See, oh, see, it's working already. Good job. Uh, yes, see, um, you're probably praying to that you're not so homesick. Oh, yeah, you're probably praying to get used to missionary life and be able to handle a schedule. Uh huh. Probably praying to get along with your companion. Uh, sorry, companion. Yeah, I'm trying. Um, and I kind of went through the list and. I, I'm, not, I'm not a prophet. I'm not reading his mind. I had just been a missionary, and I knew what a missionary needed. That was me. Those are the exact prayers that I offered years before. And then I said to the rest of the district, to the other 11, is that what all you are praying for too? And the 12 heads were all nodding in unison. I said, can we try an experiment? Since you all are struggling in the same areas, and you're for more or less, and you're all praying for essentially the same blessings since you all need them, Let's try this experiment. Instead of asking God that he bless you with all of those things, pray that God will bless your fellow missionaries with those things. Don't even ask for anything yourself. Starting tonight in your prayers, plead with God that he'll bless the members of your district. And then trust that they're doing the same for you. Now, the same kinds of blessings are, are what we're seeking, but... What's different about the approach? In the old way, you had one prayer being offered on your behalf, and it was yours. So in a way, it was a little bit selfish. You had good motives. Don't worry, I'm not calling you out. But this way, you now have 11 selfless prayers being offered on your behalf. And I'm sure your mom and dad are doing that for you already, so count them too. You understand what I'm getting at? And that district began to do just that. It was a beautiful thing to see. And to watch missionaries watering others, it was amazing to watch their grass grow because God was watering them. I, I believe in that principle. I think there's something powerful to it. Turning to Proverbs 12, here's a few more powerful principles. Uh, 25 out of these 28 verses are, this is good, but that is bad constructions. So we're following that pattern. Verse 4 a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. Now that can be flipped around and the same would be true for a virtuous man. But in a way, this is a preview of what we'll see in Proverbs 31, where we get the bulk of a chapter dedicated to a virtuous woman. 
Yes, crown to her husband and crown to everyone else she meets. In verse 10, a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Think about that one. If you're righteous, you even take good care of your animals. If you're wicked, then what seems to look like taking good care is actually probably self-centered. Uh, there's probably a catch to it. It's probably more about the person than the, the person doing it than the person being done for. And so, no, I don't even trust the tender mercies of the wicked. Chances are they're not that tender or that merciful. Interesting proverb. In some ways we could say good people treat animals like people and bad people treat people like animals. How's that for a reversal? Uh, let's look at verse 18. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. There's quite a few proverbs about how we use our words. Are we feeding the multitudes? We saw that already. This one, are we healing or are we hurting? And I pray that my words give health to people. I'm, I always try to be careful not to pierce anyone with my sword. God's word is a sharp sword. It's personified by that in the book of Revelation, in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's a sharp two-edged sword. It heals those who need it. It hurts those that need to be rebuked. Uh, so we need to be careful with what we say to people and how we say it. Proverbs 13, following the same pattern, 22 out of 25, or this is good, but that is bad. Verse 7, there is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. And on the other hand, there is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Similar to the proverb we already saw. But it reminds me of a conversation I had with my kids. Uh, we were driving in our old beat-up minivan one day, and they said, Dad, are we rich? <laughs> and how do you answer that? Uh, and I, I smiled and said, well, you know, there's two kinds of rich, kids. There's rich in money, and there's rich in love. And if you could only pick one of those, which would you pick? And they all chimed in unison, oh, rich in love. I'm like, awesome. In that case, we are loaded. We are rich, rich in love. And that satisfied them for a time <laughs> until a few minutes had passed in silence. And one of them must have been thinking about it because they piped up and said, Dad, is it wrong to be rich in both ways? <laughs> you could just see what was going on in their little mind. I said, no, no, it's not at all. Um, but again, if you could only pick one, just make sure you choose the right one. Uh, and that proverb seems, seems to suggest the right one. Now, verse 10, only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Contention only comes by pride. Uh, President Benson would back that up. It's enmity, as he defined it. It's oppositionality. It's friction between people. So who are the ultimate... What is the ultimate peacemaker? It's humility. It's, that's what allows you to turn the other cheek. It allows you to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. It, it's the lubricant of love that helps smooth the friction that would otherwise take place. Verse 19. I love this one because I'm a pragmatist and I uh, try to be productive as often as I can. The desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. But it is abomination to fools to depart from evil. Now, that's not a very good parallelism, uh, Solomon, not one of your best, because uh, the second half doesn't really seem to 
give the converse of the first half. But that's okay. I'll take the first half. Because it's a great description of reaching a goal. And if you'll set goals and work toward them, then the desire accomplished, it is sweet. If we can help our children sense and taste that sweetness, perhaps they'll be able to be more oh, self-motivated as they move toward their own goals. How about this one, verse 24? This one's really famous. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Now, we've seen Proverbs already that suggest that course correction is a good sign of love. But again, it's how is that course correction being offered? That's why I turned you to Doctrine and Covenants 121. That reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And sharpness isn't anger, it's clarity. Okay? Sharpness on the TV, right? No, no blurry lines. I'm just trying to be as crystal clear with you as possible. But it's the spirit that's moving me to do it, and it's love that's behind everything I'm saying. In fact, I'm going to crank up the love as soon as this conversation... I don't have to wait. I'm, gonna, I'm cranking up the love as we speak so that you know that I'm doing this for your good. I'm not venting. There are times where we are moved upon by something when we, when we reprove. But if it's not by the Spirit, if it's anger, if it's frustration, if it's bitterness, if it's disappointment, then we shouldn't be giving the advice that we would give. Wait, cool off, approach it from a better angle, in a, be in a better spirit. And so if you're sparing your rod and hating your son, you see, the problem is through much of human history, the rod was taken literally in this verse. And I'm, 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 this is my stick. And this is what I'm going to use to punish. This is the paddle. My grandma used to use a fly swatter back in the day. Uh, and if, if you're thinking, well, they've got to turn out and I'm going to use this stick and physically assault my children, that's something we have to be so, I'll, I'll put it this way. What rod are we talking about? Remember the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What was said about the shepherd's rod and staff in that beautiful psalm? They comfort me. Because they gently pull me back onto the path when I start to wander. Or more forcefully, they're the ones that keep the wolves at bay. Well, can our counsel keep the wolves of the world away from our children? Yes. So use that one with strength. But if I'm trying to gently correct my child, then do it gently so that our rod will comfort them. Or maybe even better yet, take Lehi's dream. And what rod comes to mind then? Ah, the rod of iron, the word of God. And yes, if I spare my children that rod, if I don't teach them the word, then I'm hating them because I'm not doing what love would, would require. So please do not spare the word of God. That is a comforting staff. That is a comforting rod, and our children need it. Chapter 14, here's more. This is good, but that is bad formulations. 27 out of 35 verses, to be precise. I'll just share a few. Verse 1, Every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. And this one I love because it's talking about a wise woman. 
Now we saw wisdom gendered female earlier, but this is not gendering wisdom. This is talking about a, <laughs> a gendered woman who happens to be wise. And I love that we're speaking of a sister, a woman who's building her house uh, and thus showing her wisdom, as opposed to a foolish woman who's plucking hers down. All I'm saying is that not every verse needs to be male-oriented. Okay, These are intended for God's daughters as much as for God's sons. Now this one was intended for me, but I'll share it with you. Verse 4. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Now that one's weird, <laughs> I'll confess. This one needs a little, this is one of those dark sayings and the enigma that needs a little interpretation. Now, I'm not a farm boy, but I know uh, barns enough to realize that if there's no animals living in it, I'll bet it stays clean. <laughs> because what is it that leaves barns looking not so good and smelling not so sweet? Well, it's those animals. And the stereotypical uh, chore for a farm kid of mucking the stalls and going in and cleaning out the nastiness, well, that's disgusting work. And can you picture a child going to its, a farm kid going to the farm parent and saying, I got a good solution. I wouldn't have to muck the stalls if no one was living in them. But those nasty animals, they're making my work hard. Good point, son or daughter. But do you have any idea how much hard work those animals do for this farm? Or would you rather be the one pulling the plow yourself? You thought mucking the stall was hard? That's nothing compared to what the, the, the animal is doing itself. So, yes, the crib would be clean. The crib is the stall. It would be clean if there was no ox there. But I'm so grateful for what the ox can provide by way of strength that the increase far outweighs the difficulty of cleaning up after it. Now, why did I say that this applies to me when I'm not a farmer? Well, because I'm a parent. <laughs> and I could say the same, that where no children are, the house is clean and quiet and calm. But much increase is by the presence of children. Are children a burden or a blessing? Yes. But that added burden is far outweighed by the added blessing, the increase of joy and happiness and love and purpose, meaning. I, of, of my family, I'm the cleanest one. Um, and I don't say that pridefully. It's more, it's probably some OCD on my part. I just like to have things organized. My dad said when he got home from work when I was a little kid, all of the knickknacks on the mantle were reorganized uh, in and made symmetrical by descending height order. And she, he just laughed and said, I think Jared was here. <laughs> so I guess that had been manifest from an early age. And I just kind of like a place for everything and everything in its place. And I just like to keep things organized. And that's not the case with children by nature, typically, unless they came with that nature. And I don't think I passed that one down. That, that gene stayed with me. Uh, and so this is a verse that I sometimes have to remind myself of. And I go, oh, dirty cribs. <sighs> That's okay. Much increase. And I'm grateful for it.
maybe some of you out there need that verse as well. If not, thanks for uh, letting me uh, share something that's helped me. Verse 15. The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his going. That one's pretty simple and straightforward, but I like it. Don't be gullible is the advice it gives to me. Verse 34, I like this one too. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. There's an old saying in American history. Most people tend to associate it with Alexis de Tocqueville, although there's no evidence he actually ever said it. So maybe we're just attributing it to, to him, like many of these proverbs are simply attributed to Solomon. But according to the old saying, it says that America will cease to be great once she ceases to be good. And I don't, I love de Tocqueville. Uh, Democracy in America is a classic read, but I don't, I don't need him to, to tell me that statement for me to believe in it. That one I do believe in. And our greatness, any nation, not just America, greatness depends on goodness. And so righteousness exalts a nation. I hope it's exalting ours or wherever you live. Proverbs 15 has 33 verses. 22 of them are, this is good, but that is bad constructions. I'll just give you a few. Verse 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. That first half is a very famous phrase. I just wish we lived it as often as we quoted it. And when people were angry, we responded in softness because it gives them a chance to be soft as well. Too often it's escalating one up after the other and they were mad so I can be mad back. I'm justified and that, well, now they're justified in getting madder and we just keep intensifying. Whereas if they're angry and we don't get angry in return, it almost jolts them into like, wait a minute, am I being a jerk here? Because if, if they were just a jerk back, then I would have felt totally justified. But since they're not, ew, I'm only looking at myself and I want, I think I better back off a little bit. And then that soft answer turns away wrath. In verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Now notice what's being given in the first half versus the second half. First half was sacrifice. Second half was prayer. Just prayer, we might say, since it seems so much easier than actually bringing the ox or the sheep or the ram. But what does God prefer? It's how it's done. The spirit in which it's given. Because if that sacrifice, an entire ox even, if it's from the wicked, then God doesn't accept it. It's an abomination to him. Whereas if all you have is a widow's might equivalent of prayer, but it's done in sincerity by the righteous, the upright, then God delights in it. Just like Jesus delighted in that widow. In verse 16, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. Now this one sounds very similar to the one we just studied. Uh, what's better, right? The big sacrifice or the little prayer? Well, forget about that. It's how it's done and who it's being done by. Similarly here. The second half of it is the more famous. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox if hatred's coming along with it. And can you imagine coming home and, mmm, smells good, mom, what's for dinner? Smells like, uh, smells like basil. It's like, yeah, that's what's for dinner. What, basil on what? No, just the basil, that's all we got. 
oh, it's okay. I sure love you and you love me and the basil is going to taste delicious as we just share. It's not going to get in the way of the conversation. We'll be able to eat quickly and then just hang out together as opposed to what's, what's on the, the menu next door. Oh, a stalled ox? We got the fatted calf. But if it's between an older brother and a younger prodigal and they're at odds and enmity, ah, no wonder dad came out and tried to calm everybody down or called the old, calm older brother down because, yeah, we got the stalled ox. We just don't want any hatred therewith. So let's, more important than the menu is the manners uh, between the people that have come for the meal. Proverbs 16 is next, and there, here we go away from that normal formulation of this is good, but that is bad. We'll see two more chapters near the end of the book, 28 and 29, that get back to that uh, construction. Uh, but now we're going to just be more, again, pithy proverbs, uh, wise adages uh, that hopefully will make sense to us. Here's a few worth studying in chapter 16. Verse 1, the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now, as a teacher, I'm grateful for that. Because when I'm opening my mouth and speaking, my tongue, uh, it gives answers. But they're not from me, they're from the Lord. And I'm grateful for that. And then the flip side, the preparations of the heart, that's from the Lord too. Some people are really good at preparation that struggle with presentation. And other people are really good at presentation but don't want to pay the price of preparation. And here, both sides are there. And both sides deserve, or God deserves the glory. And, and I hope that we turn to him and offer that praise and that gratitude. It's from the Lord. Remember those great promises that treasure up continually the words of life, and then take no thought what you shall say, for it shall be given you in the very moment, that portion that shall be meted to every man. That passage has both parts as well. It's open your mouth and it shall be filled, but it's also treasure up continually the words of life. And if God is there for your preparation, then of course he'll be there for your presentation. Trust that he's with you all the way through. They both should be and can be spirit-directed. Verse 17, this one's a little bit odd. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keepeth his way preserveth his soul. The word that struck me in that was highway. Because we talk about the righteous walking on straight and narrow paths. Right? So if we talk about the path of the righteous is, is straight and narrow uh, because it's, it's following the commandments, it's seeking wisdom in every set of circumstances and how much justice versus how much mercy and I'm trying to balance and I'm walking a narrow way. But when it comes to departing from evil, because that's the phrase that's, that's used here, if the upright is, is departing from evil, that one, that's a straight up highway. That's like a 10-lane super freeway and just pedal to the metal and get out of there as quickly as you can. Uh, in, in many ways, departing from evil is not straight and it's not, not narrow. It's, you were, you're leaving the wide roads and you know, so you still have a lot of lanes to just get out, get out as quickly as you can. It, it'll get narrower later on, but don't worry, you'll have time to merge, okay? Other people will even yield and let you, let you come in because it's, it's the path of the righteous, and we want to make room for everybody, okay? Uh, how about uh, verse 18, another very famous phrase. We, we phrase it a little differently, uh, but it, this is where it comes from. Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit 
before a fall. Remember in Hebrew poetry, often it's parallel uh, phrases, lines that are repeated. We'll see more of that next week when we get to Isaiah. I can hardly wait to start Isaiah with you. Now we'll learn about Hebrew poetry, but this is a good example of it. Pride goeth before destruction. Now let me say that again in different words. A haughty spirit before a fall. Now the way we typically phrase it in the English speaking world is we just have kind of combined the two and shortened it. Uh, we don't want to rhyme. We just want one, one and done. And so we, what do we say? Pride goeth before the fall. And that, that sums up that verse perfectly. And it's true. Pride does. If, if you fall and look back a bit and realize, oh yeah, I kind of set myself up for that, didn't I? I think there was a story. It, it, there was a story. I think it was about Heber J. Grant, if I remember correctly. He was an incredibly young state president and was nervous and didn't feel qualified for it. That's like Moses, like Enoch, like everybody, right? Gideon, you name them. Anyway, uh, the first time he had to speak at a conference alongside an apostle, he was scared to death, but so humbly he took the stand and the Lord opened his mouth and filled it. And both, pre I mean, presentation came, was of the Lord, right? And, and it was amazing. And again, this young Heber J. Grant was so grateful and relieved and, and in awe of it all. But then later, feeling like, okay, I got this. I guess I'm better at speaking than I thought. Uh, he goes and tries again and crashes and burns. Uh, to the point that when he sat down with his tail between his legs, the apostle with him leans over and says something along the lines of, if you would have gone up the way you came down, you would have, gone, you would have come down the way you went up. In other words, you went up with confidence, <laughs> pride in fact, and came down totally devastated. If you would have gone up in humility, you would have come down with confidence, like the last time. Uh, there's another example of pride going before the fall. He fell because he started with pride. We need to start with humility, and we'll rise as a result. Uh, another famous one, verse 32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Yes, self-discipline and self-control are needed. I mean, this is military imagery, right? Taking a city, there's somebody conquering an enemy. Well, the enemy usually lies within. And if we can wage and win that war, oh, there's, there's conquest for you. It's becoming who we need to become. And that, that's a battle worth fighting. Proverbs 17, a good handful of wonderful uh, Proverbs. Verse 1, better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. That's similar to the, the stalled ox versus herb dinner that we saw on the menu a little bit earlier. And if this is Solomon speaking, then he has every right to say it. Coming from a man with 700 wives and 300 concubines, you want to talk about a house full of sacrifices with strife? Ah, can I just eat a dry morsel by myself sometime? Verse 6, children's children are the crown of old men. And the glory of children are their fathers. Oh, those are the joys of a happy family life. And I do love the, the focus on grandkids, children's children, crown of old men. I'm sensing that for my father and my father-in-law. Or how about verse 10? A reproof entereth more into a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. What does it take for you to learn from your mistakes? Just a gentle correction a reproof, in which case, I did do that wrong. And I saw, I see why I got into that mess. Thank you. I love you for loving me enough to correct me. 
as opposed to the fool, that you, you kind of, again, this is the rod in the wrong way, but a hundred stripes and you keep beating them for their, for their mistakes. This is corporal punishment, and yet it doesn't seem to do a thing. That's foolishness all the way down. Yeah, verse 12, let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. Now, if we think about the stereotypical angry mama bear and the way the, the, the writer of Proverbs is suggesting this one, man, I, I would rather run into an angry mama bear out in the woods somewhere than have to stumble across the path of an absolute fool. Uh, I, a fool in his folly is even more dangerous. Verse 17, I love this one. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Have you noticed that it's in hard times that you really find out who your friends are? And it's in hard times that your family really is the one that comes through for you. I've heard a good definition of family are the people who put up with you when no one else will. Or the people who come to your rescue when no one else wants to. That is a good definition of family and a good definition of friends. A brother born for adversity. That's what I'm here for. That's why we're flesh and blood. Verse 22. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dryeth the bones. And we often say in English that laughter is the best medicine. Well, here's the ancient Hebrew equivalent. There's power in a positive attitude. Merry heart. Or verse 28, even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. That one's kind of fun. That if you'll just be quiet, even a fool might be mistaken as somebody wise because they haven't made it obvious just how foolish they are down deep. There's actually an old saying that some attribute to Abraham Lincoln and others attribute to Mark Twain. We're actually not sure who, who said it, if either of those ever actually did. I don't know. But who started it, we're not sure. But it sounds like something that Twain or Lincoln would say. It says, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. And that is essentially what we just saw in Proverbs 17:28. Well, how about Proverbs 18? Verse 9 says that he also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. So don't be either one. If you're not working, or if you're wasting, either way, you're losing out. And the way we put it is a penny saved is a penny earned. Same kind of idea. If I'm not wasting that penny, then I've saved it, in other words. Then I might, it's, it's as if I just earned another penny. Because it, it would have been gone if I would have wasted it. So careful there among the slothful or the wasteful. Verse 13, he that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. We speak of not, don't jump to conclusions. And that's good advice. If we weigh in on the case, even before court has been called into, into order, then we're not a very good judge. I've heard some people call it the 24-hour rule. When I hear something, I wait for 24 hours before I make a decision because I don't want to go based on my emotional reaction to the, to the situation. Others will say, well, there's two sides to every story, so make sure you hear the opposite before you weigh in on, on just the one-sided view that you have. Uh, there's another great proverb in verse 19, fairly, fairly well known. A brother offended 
is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. If you've ever been home teacher or visiting teacher or ministering brother or sister to someone who's been inactive for a long time, and inactive because someone offended them, then you understand the reality of that proverb. That a brother offended, it's harder to be one than a strong city because the walls are up. They got burned at some point uh, and they were open and there weren't walls and someone offended them and now the walls are up and I can't get around them. That's a hard thing to do. And to be able to reassure people that not everyone's like that and hopefully help them get over that, that being offended and realize that, unfortunately, you're letting the, the person who offended you, you're letting them win. Because somehow they, they keep offending you. Because now every single week they're keeping you from church. Throughout, I mean, day after day, they are keeping... You're going to let them stand between you and God? That's, that's devastating. I feel bad for you that you were offended. But I feel even worse for you that... That that offense is not just keeping me out, but keeping healing out, keeping God out. we got to get over it. And on the flip side, if we're the one that is offensive, that is something we really need to overcome. It's a great line in the New Testament where Jesus says, It must needs be that offenses shall come, but woe be unto him through whom the offenses come. In other words, yeah, there's going to be jerks out there, but don't be that jerk. There's going to be hard friction and hard sayings and things that, that, that just rub people the wrong way. But don't be the type of person that, offend, that goes around offending people. Think about what you're going to say. More importantly, think about what they're going to hear and how it might come across. And, and be a little more careful about hurting people's feelings. We could all use some caution in that area. Verse 22, here's another one. Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Back in Genesis, we saw that it is not good for man to be alone, and not good for woman to be alone either. I love this one, though. You found yourself a spouse? Well, congratulations. You found yourself a good thing. Proverbs 19. Here's some other good things for you. Verse 6. Many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. Remember the way Jesus teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount? That if you only love those that love you, <laughs> what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Even a publican can respond in kind. I've sometimes joked with my wife about what we call parental publicanism. As I've thought, you know, I'm patient with children that don't require my patience. But there I am, parental publican. It's easy to be patient with kids that don't require patience. It's easy to befriend someone if they're giving you gifts all the time. I'll be careful then. Are we willing to give gifts with no expectation of return? Or turn it around. Am I willing to befriend someone that isn't giving me gifts at all? There's something powerful about that uh, in terms of social gifts. Like, but befriending this person doesn't elevate me at all because they're not looked up to. They're not respected. No, I want to have popular friends because that makes me popular. Wow, every man is friend to him who giveth gifts. But to find someone 
quote-unquote beneath you on the social scale, that have no of those none of those visible gifts to give, give your gifts to them, and you will realize that they have incredible gifts to give you in return. You just didn't know that when you <laughs> began the relationship. That's a good piece of advice as well. Verse 17 is next. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. It's a great statement. If you have pity on the poor, you're lending to the Lord. Unpack that and see what he's saying. Because when you lend someone something, they return it. And often they return it with increase if it's a bank, or they return it with cookies <laughs> if it's some, a neighbor, uh, or, or return it with a willingness to continue give and return and lend to you whenever you need it. Well, if I'm giving to the poor, who am I lending to? Not to the poor, because they can't pay me back anyway. I'm lending to the Lord, and boy, can he pay me back with increase. Now, again, the fact that it's a loan and that you're a third party, or, I, or in some ways the Lord is the third party, the way that it, it's phrased, that I'm here giving to the poor, I'm providing fast offerings, uh, just whatever thing I can, I can donate to other people, give to other people, serve other people. And if I'm in a position where they can't pay me back, that's when the Lord steps in as a third party and blesses us. But I didn't do anything for you. Oh, yeah, yeah you did. You loaned me something. How? Well, who usually provides for the poor? Since no one else seems willing to do it. Well, God does. And somehow he puts bread on the table and keeps people going. It's one of the reasons that the poor are often the most humble and most focused on God, most faithful, most wonderful people on earth because they do trust that God will provide for them and God does. But if we'll do that, then we stepped in as a third party. And we did for them what God typically does for them. Now do you see how this is a loan to him? It's like, oh, thank you. I was about to do that myself. But the fact you did, how much do I owe you? It's almost like, you know, your child needs something and you couldn't get to them fast enough to be able to give them the money and someone else was there and they did. And like, oh, thank you so much for doing that for my child. How much do I owe you? It's as if their gift to your child was a loan to you, and now you can repay it. And for God to feel that way motivates me to want to be more generous in my fast offerings and more kind to those in need. And when you are in the service of your fellow being, you are only in the service of your God. And this proverb teaches a similar principle. Verse 18 is a proverb worth studying. Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy son spare for his crying. There, parenting is another whole category in our proverbial jeopardy. There's a lot of good proverbs about this. And I love this one because, first of all, it speaks of not sparing your child for his crying. Now, again, I'm not, no justification for any kind of abuse, physical, verbal, uh, emotional, definitely not sexual. Any of those kinds of things are absolute abominations in the eyes of God. But if it's oh, trying to balance justice and mercy or uh, offering tough love that has both love and toughness, uh, if we're trying to raise our children for both the long term as well as the short term, 
Then when it says, let not thy soul spare for his crying, I get the sense of, don't let your children whine away your will. <laughs> because sometimes that happens. And sometimes it's a battle of wills between the parent and the child. And often the child wins because the whining was just so much and the parent just said, fine, then have your way. And we give in. And unfortunately, that is teaching the child negative behaviors and rewarding them. No wonder they'll keep doing it. Instead, we need to correct that. We've seen words like reproof. Here's the word chasten. But do it while there is hope. And I do love that concept. When they're still malleable, not set in their ways, we're still teaching and training and raising in righteousness. Do it. There's hope. Elder Bednar even taught an interesting principle about family scripture study, that the power of doing that frequently is that you can see when a child starts to wander off the straight and narrow. You can see the first hints that their attitude towards spiritual things is changing. Because last week they were a little bit more excited about family scripture study than this week. I wonder what's going on. Uh, or last week they had some deeper things to share, and now it feels like I'm force-feeding. Huh, maybe we just need to have a conversation and see how they're doing. There's still hope, uh, and we can, we can adjust some things. Turn next to Proverbs chapter 20. Look at verse 1. Uh, this is an interesting one about alcohol. It says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Do you catch those words? Deceived? That's what alcohol does to you. It deceives you. It flat out tricks you and tells you lies about the good it will do for you when it seems to rob you of of what it was promising. Or even that earlier one, wine is a mocker. That one's fascinating because it's just making fun of you. The alcohol you're drinking is laughing at you because it got you to do things you never would have done if you're sober. And so often those things are, they, they, make, they turn you into a laughing stock. I always loved when non-member friends would come to parties hosted by Latter-day Saints when I was a high school kid. And I, often afterwards they say things like, man, I've never been amount, around people that are so fun while they're sober. I mean, most of the places I go, people have to, you know, drink before they loosen up and have that much fun. And we always just laugh and go, yeah, we have fun and remember it the next day. It's awesome. You should keep coming. Uh, we're not mocking because the wine isn't here mocking us. Verse 4 is another good one to study. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in harvest and have nothing. You see the wisdom in that saying? Here you have a farmer who doesn't want to plow, and I guess for good reason. I mean, it's cold out there. Well, yeah, but it's not cold at all compared to how cold it'll be during the winter when it's even too cold for the crops to grow. Today, it just feels a little chilly so to the point that you think it's too cold for you to go out and plow. No, uh, we have to work on days we don't feel like it because the, the day will come where we can't do any of the work. And so if, in this verse, if you're looking for excuses not to do something, oh, it's too cold, or I'm too tired, or whatever it might be, you're going to find them. Excuses aren't really hard to find if you're looking for them. But instead, we need to realize why, what are we doing this for? There will come a, a law of the harvest, and if, 
If I'm not sowing anything, then I'm not going to reap anything. And so, yes, cold, come what may, I, I need to work regardless. I've, as I've said to my kids, and this is a, sta- a say, statement that I remember reading, I think, in high school, and it's stuck with me ever since. There's a proverb for me that much of the world's work has been done by people who weren't feeling very well. And so, yes, despite the fact that we're tired, despite the fact that we're not feeling 100%, If you're waiting on perfect days, you may never get around to plow. So, again, be wise, be careful. There's a contrary to balance and prove here as well. But but don't look for reasons to get out of things. Try to come up with reasons to be able to keep moving forward. Verse 5, I love this one. Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. You ever met somebody that is a a person of great wisdom, but also a person of few words? Then how good are you at drawing out the understanding? Because that person has a deep well of it. Do we show real interest in people? Do we ask questions and then dig a little deeper with additional questions? Do we get the quiet to open up? Oh, because yes, there's deep water there. So send down the bucket. In verse 17, bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. We saw a similar proverb earlier, but I love this one because it's so graphic with that concept of gravel in the mouth. If you're having lunch at the beach, do you ever get sand in mixed in with your sandwich? Uh, and yeah, it just it grinds and it, the grittiness, and it's, it's so annoying. It doesn't just dissolve. Gravel doesn't dissolve. And in this case, neither does sin unless we truly repent of it. Be careful with that bread of deceit. Oh yeah, it's, it tasted great going down. But careful not to bite into it too hard because you might crack a tooth. There's gravel there. You'll discover it before long. Verse 27 is a, is a proverb that Elder Packer used as the title of one of his talks. In fact, one of his most famous ones. The proverb reads... The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. And President Packer's talk was called the candle of the Lord, based on that proverb. Uh, He was speaking about the spirit. It's the one where he said that the Holy Ghost is like, or describing the the Holy Ghost is like trying to describe the taste of salt. And if if someone's never tasted salt, then no amount of words are going to help you convey what what it tastes like. Same with the feeling of and so the Holy Ghost. If someone denies the possibility of the Spirit, then your talking about it isn't going to convince them. They have to have an experience with the Spirit so that they know what it feels like themselves. And once they do, that Spirit within them, it is the candle of the Lord. And it illuminates them and illuminates the path ahead. In verse 29, for any of you old-timers, this is a good one, and I'm, getting, I'm liking it more and more with every passing year. The glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is the gray head. And yes, the grayer my head becomes, the more grateful I am for this verse. When my youngest daughter was little, I'd sometimes play with her and say, Oh, Monet, your, your hair is like sunshine and your eyes are like blueberries. And so our sweet little blue-eyed, blonde-haired little girl loved that. But sometimes she'd look up at me and go, And Daddy, your hair is like... And then the wheels would turn and she'd go, Mud. And then she'd add, 
and snow. And then she'd start laughing. <laughs> and uh, with the passage of time, it went from snowy mud to muddy snow. Where it used to be, well, it's mostly mostly dark uh, with a little gray in there. And now she's like, jo joking, well, it's mostly gray now with just some dark. Uh, and so we're making the transition. But it's okay, it's my beauty. Uh, and in the meantime, you can enjoy your glory, which is your strength. Uh, if, was it Elder Packer, again, who shared the poem about the, the old crow and the young crow? It's a, it's a good one. The old crow is getting slow. The young crow is not. Of what the young crow does not know, the old crow knows a lot. That knowing things, the old crow is still the young crow's master. What does the slow old crow not know? How to go faster. Meanwhile, the young crow flies above, below, and rings around the slow old crow. What does the fast young crow not know? Where to go. And that's true too. Oh, both old and young have something to offer their opposite. And if the young can provide some of the strength, then the old can provide some of the wisdom. It's a good combination. Proverbs 21, verse 3 is worth reading. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Sound a little like what Samuel said to Saul, that to obey is better than sacrifice? Or what my first mission president taught me, that before you get even into the realm of sacrifice, you've got to master the realm of obedience. And if you've learned to obey, now you're ready to move forward to the next. I get a sense from that psalm, the similar, similar counsel. Verse 9 is another one of those proverbs that my seminary boys loved. It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Is this coming from overmarried Solomon? Uh, in a way, it's look for personality more than you look for prosperity in a partner. Look for their spiritual gifts and value them more than any temporal gifts they may or may not have. I, I'll take a, a small corner of the housetop if I can live together in love. Maybe the, you need a wide house if you're married to a brawling spouse because you want to be as far away from them as you can. Now we'll go ahead to verse 13. Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. That goes back to the enforced empathy concept we've seen several times in the Old Testament. Uh, that if you don't feel for someone, then the day will come where you feel like them. And if you didn't do anything to help others, then there won't be others to come around to help you. Verse 19, another proverb. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. There's that concept again. Uh, in a way, we're moving closer and closer to the pessimism that we will find throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So prepare yourself for that. Uh, and then verse 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind? We saw before about the sacrifice of the wicked is not as good as the prayer of the righteous, even though prayers seem to be easier to come by than, than sacrifices do. In this case, we make it even more clear that what we're worried about is the attitude behind the action. And so... If you are coming with a wicked mind, you wicked person, then I'll consider your sacrifice wicked also. Mormon hints at that. When he talks about things that are given to God but without real intent, 
then they're counted evil. Not even counted just neutral. He, sa- he does say that in passing, but then he, he, dwell- he kind of thinks about it longer and then realizes, yeah, I think it's worse than nothing. I think it is actually a negative. That, that not giving God your heart, when you're giving him something else, it kind of smacks of, him- of hypocrisy when you think about it. No wonder it's counted as evil. So don't bring your sacrifices with a wicked mind or heart. Sacrifice the wickedness first. Then bring the sacrifice that you're giving to God. Proverbs 22, let's read verse 1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. I think for some, the closer they get to death, the more they start worrying about the inheritance they're passing down to their children. And how much will it be? How much? How about a better question? What will it be? Because according to this proverb, far greater than any kind of wealth and riches that you're passing down to posterity, a good name is rather to be chosen than that. Your honor, your virtue, your integrity can be an inheritance for children and it can last so much longer than any, oh, whatever's in your 401k. It's interesting to see, well, I'll put it this way. I love meeting people who know my parents. And my parents are just celestial souls. And when people know them and they're just, oh, you're, you're, are you that? Are you related to those Halversons? And when I tell them, yes, I am, oh, I am grateful for the good name that they've given me. I hope to pass it down to my, to my children. I don't know if there'll be much else to pass down. <laughs> it's okay. This, I'll, I'll attach it in, in my will. I'll just quote that verse. How's that? Okay. Sorry, kids. I got nothing to leave you. But here's a good name, and I hope it sticks. <laughs> in verse 2, the rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. I think that verse should be mentioned every time we talk about the law of consecration. Because that's what happens. That verse is, describes what happens through consecration. The rich and the poor Meet together. Somewhere in the middle, as the rich are providing for the poor, because they had more than they needed, and the poor are receiving to be able to meet their needs, and they realize in the process that the Lord is the maker of them all. I think we live in a time, sadly, where the rich feel justified in not sharing anything with the poor, or very little, because they think, well, I I did this all myself. I'm a self-made man. I earned all this. I worked for it. Well, yes, you did, probably. Uh, Maybe not to the degree that you're taking credit, though. Because if we can understand that the Lord is the maker, I mean, where were you born and in what circumstances and with what possibilities for education? And are there some structural or systemic things that worked in your favor that have not worked in the favor of others? Oh, And be careful about pride from above because it's just going to be met with pride from below. and, And that's a disaster. Whereas in real consecration, when we realize that we are stewards rather than owners and that we're here to serve the Lord, that the Lord is the maker of us all. And so we come together under his direction and offer it all to him as he then gives us according to our needs. That's a beautiful verse for that. Verse six contains a very famous passage. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I know some of you are scratching your heads looking at that verse thinking, well, that hasn't been the case for me. I did everything I could to train up my children in the ways they should go. And family prayer and family scripture study and family home evening and 
I did everything I could to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And yet they are so far away from the straight and narrow path, it's as if they, they never heard a word about it. A good friend of mine and I were just talking, texting yesterday, and he said, you know, it's, you never know what life's going to bring and what your children will go through and, and what they'll put you through. And he said, every once in a while at church, I'll see a sweet young mother or father out in the hallway with their baby. And I'm tempted sometimes to walk by and just say, enjoy it now because it's going to be harder later. So I always resist that temptation. And I said, good. I, I feel it sometimes too and resist it as well. Uh, you never know what your children will put you through. But hold on to that promise. Trust in the good seeds that you've planted. And trust that they're children of heavenly parents too, who have that child's best interest in mind and have the time and patience to play the long game. We have the theology to play the long game too. We can trust in God's ultimate promises that when he is old, and we don't know how old that's going to be, but they'll return to the path that they wandered away from. In the meantime, don't let up on your training. <laughs> okay. Verse 7, here's another one. The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. You ever had a lesson on debt before? That verse will usually come up. Uh, you listen to Dave Ramsey, <laughs> who's a good southern boy that knows his scriptures uh, and talks about uh, financial security. There's a warning that he would give. But the borrower is servant to the lender. Debt is absolute bondage. And it's a taskmaster that doesn't take any days off. So be very careful about that. In verse 28, be careful about this too. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. That's great advice. The ancient landmarks. In political jargon, we talk about conservatism and progressivism or liberalism. And progressivism is all about progress. I want to move forward. It's the future that I'm looking to. Whereas conservatism is I'm conserving the past. And so conservatives, for the most part, look to the past and see its value and hold on to it. Whereas progressives look to the future and think things are going to get better. So let's get rid of the things that are holding us back. Now, like I've said before, I'm a prover of contraries. I try to seek balance. And so I see value in both. And so can I look to the future with my eyes to the past as well? Uh, can, I, can I balance these? And I love the thought, especially among the rising generation, which tends to be more future-oriented because they have more of it to look to, uh, be careful about removing the ancient landmarks. They might be there for a reason. Before you knock out that wall, double-check to see if it's load-bearing, will you? Because we might be doing things wisely rather than simply unintentionally. And, if, and change for the sake of change may lead to more harm than good. Do a little more homework on the ancient landmarks, will you? And then you'll decide whether or not they should be removed. Proverbs 23 comes next. And if you look at verse 1, When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. And put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. <laughs> be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Now that's some strong language. Put a knife to thy throat. What he's warning you about is 
be very careful, especially if you're seated before a ruler. Because they're, they're movers and shakers and they're in charge and wait, they're entertaining you? Hmm, wonder why. Are there strings attached? That's why he says to consider diligently what's before you. And if you're the type that's given to appetite and you're just going to eat it all and take it all hook, line, and sinker to the point now that the, the ruler feels justified in making demands since you accepted all that they gave, I'll be very careful because those dainties, as they're called, might be deceitful when all is said and done. In the book of Revelation, when it talks about Babylon and the way that it draws people in, it's through its dainties and its delicacies and its delicious things. But all of those things are deceitful as they're just trying to lull us into a false sense that, oh yeah, I've got something to offer you. Come feast at my table. Uh, no thanks. I know my appetite better than that, and I might end up eating things that I shouldn't. So no thank you. In verse 7, this is a famous phrase, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Have you heard that before? That your thoughts lead to attitudes and behaviors and ultimately to to who you'll end up being. So be careful what you think about. For as you think in your heart, so will you be. Verse 29 through 35 is a long section, but I've never seen a better description of alcohol in the scriptures than this. We saw one before about wine mocking you, right, and deceiving you, but this one's even better. So for my wife and son who work with alcoholics and addiction recovery, uh, this is a passage that I hope will help motivate people to stay away from those, the dangers of alcohol or overcome the addiction with, no, no matter how many times it takes to get over it. Starting at verse 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? Well, let me answer. They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. It's a great description of the kinds of results that alcohol brings into people's lives. Remember the list. Woe, sorrow, contention, babbling. That's why it's mocking you. Wounds without cause. How did this happen to me? I don't even remember. Well, keep going. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. You see the way it's kind of seducing you into putting that cup to the lips? Oh, it just looks so good as it's swirling around in that glass. But keep reading. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. And if you saw the serpent's tail in the swirling of the cup, I think it'd be easier to put it down and keep it away from you. Keep going. Thine eyes shall behold strange women. And Proverbs has warned us against them multiple times. And thine heart shall utter perverse things that you won't even know are coming out of your mouth. And that's not all. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Now, what a powerful mental image. Imagine someone trying to sleep on, on the deck of a boat that's being tossed back and forth by a stormy sea. Or even worse, look up and there up in the crow's nest, the top of the mast. Oh, that person's getting thrown around side to side by this storm. 
Well, that describes those that are drunk pretty well. Are they leaning over the edge and <laughs> losing their lunch over everything that they've been drinking? The passage ends, They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? Can you imagine being in that situation? Why do I feel so sick to my stomach? Do I have the flu? Is COVID coming back? No, you, you're drunk or you're hungover and no wonder you feel sick. Or they've beaten me. I didn't even feel it. Well, yeah, you were in no position to feel anything. But like, where did I get this black eye or that bruise? Or why is my car dented? Or it's, it's scary what can happen when people have lost control of themselves. So when he asks, when shall I awake? When am I going to wake up and snap out of this? But then how does the passage end? I will seek it yet again. And that's the real tragedy. Despite everything that we read in these verses of woe and sorrow and babbling and wounds. And I was seasick to the point I thought I'll never do this again. But as soon as I really wake up and get sober again. So when are we going to go out and drink? My heart goes out to those who are caught in that snare. And there is hope for you. Again, I hear it from my wife and son all the time. And it's, it's amazing what they're trying to do to help. And amazing what people are trying to do to be helped. If you're in that situation, keep fighting that fight. And if you're not, then don't ever get into it. Powerful passage that I hope warns us away. Proverbs 24 comes next. And if you look at verse 10, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Now please don't be offended by that, but realize that, well, for that particular adversity, my strength was indeed insufficient. It doesn't mean it has to stay that way. Keep growing stronger, keep developing that spiritual strength, and the day will come where adversity doesn't beat you, you beat it. And there's no fainting anymore. Or verse 13 and 14. My son, eat thou honey, because it is good. And the honeycomb, which is sweet to thy taste, so shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. We saw honey as a negative thing in an earlier verse. That sweet seduction of sin. Here it's being used in a more positive light. That wisdom ought to taste like honey to you. I've read that among some Jewish families, they'll even do that. That if they're going to read scripture with their children, they'll open some honey and put a little dot on the child's tongue before they begin to study scripture. So that that child associates scripture with sweetness. Every time they open the book. I hope that we sense that. I hope that... Again, I'm speaking to the choir because here you are with me. Uh, but this is a sweet experience to be able to open up the scriptures and to be able to, to, to feel the honey begin to flow into our souls. Turn to verse 17 next. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and then brace yourself. And he turn away his wrath from him. Ah, darn it, I love that proverb right up until the end. Because it seems so noble. I'm not going to rejoice at an enemy's fall. I'm not going to rub it in that they stumbled. I don't want the Lord to see that because it will, it will displease him. 
Now, so far, so good. Yeah, the Lord doesn't want me to think that way toward my enemy. But at the end, because then the Lord's going to turn away his wrath from him, from that enemy. Oh, wait. That, hmm. Is this a little spiteful still? Well, again, we're still living on an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of culture. Uh, and we're past that, right? The Lord in the Sermon on the Mount raises the bar and says, yeah, get, let's, can we go beyond that and get to the next level and actually love your enemies <laughs> instead of just putting up with them? But back in this time period, there's, it, he is suggesting something here that I find interesting. If someone is wicked, if your enemy is out there, then yes, they will, they will reap what they sowed, and, but vengeance is the Lord's, and we're going to leave it in his hands. Remember how David treated Saul, okay? Uh, if, on the other hand, then you step in, it's kind of the flip side. Now, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of this. It's the flip side of what we saw about lending to the Lord. If I'm caring for the poor, I'm doing what God would do. Well, if I'm punishing the wicked, or if I'm attacking my enemy, then again, I'm stepping in as middleman and doing what the Lord is supposed to do. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And I'm supposed to leave that in his hands. And if I don't, then what has happened? Well, according to this verse, picture God stepping back. Again, with the poor, he's like, oh, thank you so much for doing that. May I pay you back for what you've done. Well, in this case, he, the Lord looks at you and like, why did you do that? I'm supposed to reward wickedness with punishment. You thought you knew how to do that better? Well, first of all, you don't. You don't see their side of the story as well as I do. You don't know the big picture. That's why you've got to leave it with me. But since you think you've done all that's necessary, I guess I'll step back. I mean, if you think about it, God is far more merciful than we could ever be, but he's also far more just. Uh, and there's wisdom in letting God deal with it because he knows just, he, he won't be too hard or too soft. He's, he, God lives in the Goldilocks zone, okay? It's the God zone. Uh, and for us to just leave things in God's hands is the wisest way to live. He can take care of things better than we can. Keep going though, in verse 28 and 29, here's a different proverb to live by. Be not a witness against thy neighbor without cause, and deceive not with thy lips. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Yeah, don't say that, because that's the negative counterpart of the golden rule. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have others do unto you. The, I don't know what even to call this, if it's not gold, what is this? Uh, aluminum foil, tin, uh, iron, lead. The lead rule is do to others what they did to you. Yeah, they were mean to you, be mean right back. And I'm going to do what he's done to me. No, we've got to be better than that. Again, we're trying to graduate from eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth levels of living. Proverbs 25, look at verse 1. These are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. So here we have wisdom being passed down through posterity. By the time Hezekiah is on the throne, quite a bit of time has passed since good old King Solomon. But his wisdom far outlived him. And so here's his scribes copying out those Proverbs from Solomon, saying they still apply. And here we are thousands of years later, 
and they still apply in our day as well. So hold on to them. Verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. There's the beauty and value of a well-spoken word. Or 21 and 22, if thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. Now, if you stopped right there, we've got New Testament mentality. But keep reading, and sadly, it's still Old Testament eye for an eye. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Now, that y- yikes about the last part again. Just like we saw in the previous proverb, it's like, how are we treating our enemies? Oh, you tra- treated them meanly, then God will come at them with kindness. And this one flips it around. You treat them with kindness, then it's God that will heap coals of fire upon their head. Now, only if they deserve the, the coals of fire, okay? We're trying to balance justice and mercy, but it's a matter of who's giving which. And if you're the ones giving the justice, then God's not going to. He did not, doesn't have to. You thought you did a good job yourself. The flip side, though, if you'll respond with mercy, God will take care of the justice, whatever that entails. Now, I've said before, this is still Old Testament time period, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth approach. By the New Testament, Jesus will change it and tell us all to love our enemies and to pray for those that despitefully use us and persecute us. But even that took some time for the saints to grow into because there is a place in the book of Romans where Paul quotes this verse from the Proverbs and still talks about heaping coals of fire upon their heads. When you read that in Romans, it's kind of jarring. You're like, what? That seems a little rough day, Paul. You, you okay? And if we don't realize... Or I should say, what we should realize, Paul is quoting scripture there. And the saints are still in the process of fulfilling the law and getting on to something more gospel, something loftier and higher. Uh, You can look at verse 25, and if you've ever been a, a missionary out in the field, you'll know what this one means to you. As cold waters to a thirsty land, so is good news from a far country. That's for sure. Every letter, every care package I got from California when I was serving in Puerto Rico... Oh, was a, a breath of fresh air. It was a drink of cold water. Uh, makes you wonder who's in need of your cold water right now. Go write them. Send them an email. Send them a text. Let them know there's news from you. Or verse 28. How about this piece of wisdom? He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. We're back to the idea of self-discipline. And if we can't discipline ourselves, then how do we expect to be able to survive the attacks of others? We will fall prey to whatever temptations and snares they have set. Because there's nothing stopping them from coming in and conquering. There's no wall there. Proverbs 26 has a few verses that are are worth holding on to. Verse 4 and 5 are tricky ones. Verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. But then verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And you're going, what? In two verses, side by side, they contradict each other? What's up with that? Again, verse 4 says, Don't descend to their level. It's just, it's not going to do any good. You're going to look as foolish as they are. So if they mock you, if they ridicule you, just leave it alone. Turn the other cheek, get past, live on a higher standard, and, and people will recognize the difference and they'll honor you for it. They, they know, like you do, that such mockery or ridicule is beneath you. 
when it wasn't beneath your attacker. So that puts them on a lower level. Then what's up with verse 5? No, go ahead and answer a fool according to his folly. In this case, it's fight fire with fire. And they're shredding you, then shred them right back. It's actually interesting that uh, my dissertation was on uh, Thomas Paine's anti-biblical attacks. And it was part of a, a larger project that I had in mind of just how has religion been attacked throughout modern history. And what I what I found in my research was so often it boils down to ridicule. It's just the great and spacious building. They're mocking and pointing the finger, right? And it, may, it shames people into leaving the tree of life. And so throughout so much of the history of modern skepticism, and even ancient, they would just turn faith into a farce. And they would make religion a laughingstock. And then people would be shamed out of their belief and just feel, I, I, I'm, I look smarter if I, if I leave all of this. Well, what's interesting is reading and studying the responses to those kinds of attacks, they fall along the lines of Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. And most ministers would quote verse 4 and say, no, I'm not going to descend to that level. And some, are, I'm not even going to respond because that's beneath me. And others, oh, I will defend the faith, but I'm not going to attack the faithless. I, I don't want to do that. Uh, and so they tended towards verse 4. But there were others who tended towards verse 5. And they'd usually quote Proverbs 26, verse 5. And they'd usually bring up Elijah and the priests of Baal. And he was a smack talker himself. Remember? We got fire. Yes, we do. We got fire. How about you? Uh, and so here it is. We're gonna, yeah, I'm, I think the, the priests of Baal are foolish. And I'm going to respond with some tomfoolery of my own. And so Elijah does. And so did some of these ministers. And they wrote uh, diatribes against Thomas Paine, for example, that were as sarcastic and snarky as Paine's own writings were against them. And yeah, two can play that game, Tom. And so they do it. Uh, which one's right? That's the tricky part. And I think there is wisdom in putting these verses side by side and forcing the issue. Because you really do have to pick, am I doing verse 4 here or am I doing verse 5? Because they both seem like wise counsel. But you can't do them both simultaneously. That's the key. These, therefore, must be situation-specific. And I have some, I had a student, in fact, that came to me and says, you know, I want to write, I want to make some, like, satirical videos that poke fun at, at the loss of faith. And I, I like, okay, okay. Um, and I talked to him about these two verses <laughs> and said, just be aware of the, the, the balance beam, the tightrope that you're walking here. Myself, personally, I'm a verse 4 kind of a person, not a verse 5. When I was a kid, I was, when I was a teenager, I was a verse 5 kind of a guy. And I think it started to switch on my mission. Because on my mission, I'm like, you want to bash with me? Oh, I'll bash with you. Uh, and I learned then that you lose even when you win. And I didn't like the loss of the spirit that came with contention. And so ever since, I've tried my hardest, and I'm getting better and better at it with time, to avoid verse 5 at all costs and never answer a fool according to his folly or, or even insinuate that they're fools at all. I try to give them the benefit of the doubt every time uh, in hopes that the Spirit can be a part of our relationship and our conversations and, and I can hopefully lead them in a better, a better way. 
but I do realize that there are others in a situation in life or at an age or with a personality, whatever it might be. I warned this student of mine who's got a great personality and he even showed me some of his videos and I said, oh, those are funny. And I'm grateful for the goal that you have in making them. Uh, I would just make sure you steer clear of individual people and don't name names or, or again, label someone a fool. Uh, I think there are sensitive ways that verse 5 can be navigated. But like I said, I'll, personally, I'll stick with verse 4. Uh, keep going. Verse 11. As, here's a graphic one, so grace, brace, brace yourself. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. I told you it'd be a graphic mental image. If you really stop and pause and think that one through, it's disgusting. But hopefully that disgusts us out of following suit. In fact, that's why Peter does it. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he quotes that verse and applies it to sinners and says, if you sin, but then repent, you got it out of you. You, you vomited out that, that vice. But if you go back to it, guess what you've just become? A dog returning to its vomit. And again, if you can let that mm, disgusting mental image move you away from falling back into your sins, then it was totally worth it. Okay. Or verse uh, 14, for those that are the, the, the sleepers on their beds, like we saw in a previous proverb. As the door turneth upon his hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. Can you picture that one? <laughs> As they're just rolling back and forth, never getting up and actually getting anything done. Verse 20, another simple piece of advice. Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. Go back to our discussion of gossip. And what does it do when it comes to you? Does it end? Do you put out the fire or do you fan the flames and pass them on? Because if you'll just, and this is true not just of gossip, but of anger or friction or any other kind of negative uh, emotion, if you'll just rob it of its fuel, there's no more wood. The fire's going to go out. Let it do that. Quit adding fuel to the fire. Or in Proverbs 27, uh, I love verse 2. Let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth. A stranger and not thine own lips. How do we say that in our day? Don't toot your own horn. This is old advice. Or verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. When the Apostle Paul talks about speaking the truth in love, that's the kind of truth that might hurt, but it's spoken in love because... I care for you and care how you turn out. That's the description there. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I don't want this to hurt, but well, sometimes doctors have to cause some pain to be able to cure us from worse pains out there. Same when it comes to parenting or, or leading or correcting. Uh, back to the list of uh, women for 500, Alex. Uh, verse 15, my seminary boys loved this one. A continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Yeah, same thing. You show me a contentious friend, partner, it doesn't have to be gendered here, but show me a contender. And what will I show you? Water torture, where the rain just keeps on dripping and dropping and ah, it's incessant. 
or verse 22, Though thou shouldst bray a fool in a mortar among wheat with a pestle, yet will not his foolishness depart from him. Now for this one, we have to know how people would grind their grains back in the day. And perhaps you've even seen this done in our day. You can, get, you can find a mortar and pestle, and you put corn in there or kernels of, of grain. Uh, you can do this with a lot of different things, and you just crush. the. It's between stone and stone, and you're grinding it down to powder. Well, it'll work with, with, to separate wheat from chaff. That'll separate to ground corn into, into cornmeal. But it won't work if you've got a fool in there. And even though you're grinding him out, trying to get the, the foolishness out of him, it's not going to work. That's how much it sticks to them. It's what they're made of. You can sense Solomon's frustration there of, try as I might. I've been doing this for 27 chapters now. Are there still fools out there? Because what's going to work? Or verse 23 and 4, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well to thy herds, for riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation. We're back to a temporal one that has some spiritual aspects. Know the state of your flocks. Keep an eye on those herds. Uh, we could say in our day, keep a budget. Uh, keep an eye on your finances. See how your home and car are as far as repair or disrepair. Plan for a rainy day. Balance your checkbook. Keep an eye on how things are going. Oh, those, are, those are all good pieces of advice for all of us. Now, chapter 28 and 29, we're nearing the end of the book of Proverbs. And now we're going to go back to two chapters that are heavy on the, the old uh, formulation. This is good, but that is bad. Go back to comparing and contrasting and choose the right one. In chapter 28, there's 28 verses, and 18 of them follow that formula. Uh, here's one for you. Verse 1, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The first half is interesting. No one's chasing you. Why are you running? Well, because I probably ought to be chased based on the things that I've done. If you're dishonest and you're, therefore you're always keeping an eye at your back, Who's chasing me down to, to get me to repay them or to punish me for what I've done? Whereas the righteous, I'm not being pursued by anything. I'm fine. I can be bold as a lion. Or verse 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Confess and forsake we see in the Doctrine and Covenants. That's the definition of what repentance is all about. But here the emphasis is on confession as opposed to covering our sins. And remember in Hebrew, the verb for atonement is cover. So there's this irony. If you cover your sins, as in hide them, don't confess them to God, or in serious cases to priesthood leaders, then you're trying to cover them, which means God can't. Whereas if you uncover them, and that's what confession is, then God will cover them through the atonement. I love that because it's going to be covered by one or the other, but not both. So take your pick. Uh, I, I hope that motivates us to confess as well as forsake our sins. In verse 15, as a roaring lion and a raging bear, so is a wicked ruler over the poor people. We saw a raging bear earlier, right? Mama bear. I'd rather meet her than a fool in his folly. Here, though, it's wicked leadership. We saw that 
countries that are no longer good will no longer be great. Well, here's the reason why. If there's a wicked ruler, man, they're roaring lions and who can stand up to them? They're raging bears and there's no control. I don't know what to do with them. And we have seen in recent days world leaders roaring and raging in uncontrollable ways. And we're kind of at a loss to know what to do in those situations. No wonder we need to try harder to elect and support righteous women and men in positions of power. In verse 20, A faithful man shall abound with blessings, but he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. He repeats a similar language in verse 22. He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. In our day, we call them get-rich-quick schemes, and they are schemes. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So be a little more wise and be careful about hasten, hastening to become rich. Proverbs 29 then has 14 out of 27 are the this is good, that is bad uh, formulation. Verse 2 is one of them. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. We're back to the roaring lions and the raging bears. Or verse 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. This is another version of what we saw before about if you spare the rod, you hate the child. The children need your direction and even your correction when necessary. As Edward Holland once said, second only to your love, they need your limits. And that's valuable advice. Here, it's not just sparing the rod. It seems to be sparing everything. A child left to himself? No, we've got to be better than that. We have to be more intentional in our parenting. Or verse 18. This is a famous phrase. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. No vision. This is a beautiful verse about the need for perspective. Or the need for goals. Something to shoot for or look forward to. This is a great verse about the need for prophets and prophetic vision. Seers, seers, and revelators. And without that, we perish for lack of light. We don't know where we should be heading as a society. And so, yes, be grateful for those who have eyes to see. Or verse 21, He that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become his son at the length. Uh, notice the process there. You start as servant, but you're raising that servant up from a child. And as they grow up under your guidance, by the end, they feel like a child to you. They become a son or daughter at the last. A great example of that is the Doctrine and Covenants taken as a whole. Because early on, Joseph Smith is described as my servant Joseph. But keep reading, and he becomes, oh, Joseph, my my friend, and best of all, Joseph, my son. How to grow up in God, that's, that's the process. First we are hired, then we're adopted. <laughs> because we don't act like a servant anymore. We act like a child of God. We've grown up in Him. Proverbs 30 then, look at verse, verse 8. Remove far from me vanity and lies. The word vanity is preparing us for Ecclesiastes in a moment. Give me neither poverty nor riches, he asks. 
Feed me with food convenient for me. It's a great verse about contentment, being content with sufficiency. I have enough for my needs. I'm in the Goldilocks zone. I don't have too much nor too little, so I'm good. That's what he's asking for. I don't, I'm not asking for riches, but if I could avoid poverty, that would be nice. And so somewhere in that middle ground, since there is danger at both sides of the spectrum, at least that's what he says in verse 9. Lest I be full and deny thee, that's too much, and say, who's the Lord? I don't need him. Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. That's not having enough. So avoid both of those and find contentment in the middle. Verse 11 starts with a phrase that's repeated in 12 and 13 and 14. And the phrase is, there is a generation that, and then fill in the blank, with something wicked something negative that this generation seems to struggle with. And what's interesting about that, that phrasing is that there do seem to be sins that are associated with certain time periods more than others. And at this stage of the earth's history, this seems to be the struggle that's, that's common. Philosophies come and go, and with them, the justification for certain sins. And, and what's interesting here is what are the sins of this generation? It's an important phrase to hold on to. And if we are ever to become clear of the sins of this generation, we need to know what our generational sins might be. And so pay attention to culture and society and what kinds of aberrations are being normalized. Uh, what kinds of wrongs are being said, oh, no, they're, they're right. It's okay. Uh, we've just removed the ancient landmark, okay, that our fathers and mothers set up for good reason. Uh, be, be aware of cultural norms. Uh, and it's hard because culture then, because it's our own culture, we, we think it's all normal because this is just how we do things. It's one of the great blessings of studying scripture because it gives us enough historical understanding to realize, actually, I think we're the oddballs. And there are some things going on in this generation right now that have never been justified in the past. And so we need to be careful about justifying them in the present. Next, go to verse 24, where he, again, he draws upon some lessons from nature. We saw it before with the ants, uh, you know, Aesop's ant and grasshopper. Well, how about this one? There be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. So... Little creatures, but big lessons. Number one, the ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. And we already studied that one before. Number two, the conies, and that's usually translated rock badgers, are but a feeble folk. They're, they're small, they're weak, yet make they their houses in the rocks. Well, that's wise of them. If you're weak, your home better not be. And so there they are dwelling among the rocks. Third, the locusts. They have no king, yet go they forth, all of them, by bands. You want to talk about incredible organization, even though there doesn't seem to be a lead locust anywhere. And number four, the spider, which taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. I mean, she can take her home anywhere she wants. Just lift it up in her own hands. It's, it, or it's in her own hands to do it. And so you want to be in a king's palace? That's fine. She'll get there. It is interesting to take lessons from, from all life. 
and realize that there is wisdom in the animal kingdom that sometimes seems to be missing from, from human beings. And if we can keep an eye out, all things are created and made to bear witness of God and to teach lessons of living. Let's be wise enough to recognize them. And now we're ready for, Psalm, uh, for Proverbs 31. This is an absolute masterpiece. And it's, in some ways, the Old Testament's equivalent of Doctrine and Covenants, section 25. That beautiful revelation to Emma Smith that puts into such powerful perspective the role of women in the kingdom of God. This one does a, a similar beautiful job of that, uh, starting about verse 10 and going through the end of the chapter. But we start in verse 1 ourselves and see that these are words from King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Now, unfortunately, we don't know who King Lemuel is. Some scholars suggest, is this just another name for Solomon? Are, we, are these still Solomon's Proverbs? And I don't know why, but they're calling him King Lemuel here? I, I don't know. If that's the case, is he learning these things from Bathsheba? That would be fascinating. But it doesn't necessarily matter who is behind it all, because these words are true, notwithstanding their source. The, the logos is, is sufficient to overcome any lack of ethos. Well, in this case, start in verse 10, like I said, and we'll find an answer to this question. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Now, it's a rhetorical question. It's one we're supposed to answer for ourselves. Who can find that? Well, I, I better be one of them. Uh, because if I'm going to marry someone, then I want them to measure up to this description. I sometimes joked with my seminary and institute students that when you're dating, or especially in courtship, before you drop down to one knee, hold up your spouse, or your prospective spouse, against for chapters like Proverbs 31. Or Doctrine and Covenants 25. Uh, or if you're a sister and, and he's on his knee, like, well, wait, before you ask me anything, let me compare you to things like, oh, Mormon's description of Captain Moroni. Because if you're not like him, then I'm worried about the powers of hell. Uh, and so are we measuring up to these kinds of scriptural descriptions of celestial people? And this is the description of a celestial sister, a virtuous woman. And that's the first description. Far above rubies. We saw rubies earlier. Wisdom is worth more than rubies. Virtue is worth more than rubies. So what you know and how you live and how you act, all of that, that's, that's treasure that needs to be uncovered. I love the fact that my brother and his wife, when they had children, every daughter got the same middle name. And it was Ruby because they wanted their daughters to know who they were. As daughters of God, your value is far above rubies, and no matter what the world says about you, the world often doesn't have much positive to say about virtuous women. They seem to prioritize other attributes. But God, he wants to see virtue in all of his children, and, and that middle name was a reminder for all of them. And what makes them so valuable? Start in verse 11. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. He isn't looking elsewhere, largely because she isn't. And they rest content in one another's love, and they feel secure within their relationship. I safely trust in you. 
and you can safely trust in me. I have no need of other spoils out there. In verse 12, she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. From beginning to end, there's nothing to worry about here. In verse 13, she seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. Here we see her as a hard worker, as creative. Keep going. She is like the merchant's ships. She bringeth her food from afar. We see a businesswoman here, an entrepreneur. She's taking necessary risks like those merchants in their ships. She keep reading. She riseth also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. This is a tireless servant of other people, including her own servants. Oh, not feeling above them, but trying to meet every need, no matter what time of day or night it might be. She considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hands, she planted a vineyard. Again, those are things that we would typically associate, at least Old Testament would associate with men's prerogative or men's uh, position. But no, this woman is considering fields and buying them, looking for wise investments in the future and making sure that she can take advantage of those things. She's doing things and not just waiting for a husband to take care of them all. She is proactive. In verse 17, she girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. It's a tragedy if anyone were to associate femininity with fragility or womanhood with weakness. That's not the women I know. <laughs> they are strong. And when I see, for example, what Paul says to Timothy, that, oh, I recognize your faith, Timothy, because it's the same faith I saw in your mother and your grandmother. Oh, yeah. Lois and Eunice were amazing. And I see them in you. I feel, I feel strongly about that verse because I, I follow it with amazing grandmothers and an incredible mother that were women of strength and spirituality. I'm grateful I married someone cut from the same cloth and, and raising daughters that are women of strength as well. In verse 18, she perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. Now the second half seems to be a repetition of what we saw before. She riseth while it's yet night to help people. And so often, who's the one nursing the baby crying at night? It's the mother. I did make a deal with my wife that if it's nursing, then you take care of it. But if it's a diaper, I'll take care of those. Okay? We'll be on opposite ends of digestion to be able to work on, try to become equal partners here. And so my candle was often lit at night as well, but still nothing compared to my wife's. With our oldest, the first time that... That Well, I woke up one morning, I turned to my wife and was so shocked and, and elated. And I said, she slept through the night. And my wife, bleary-eyed, rolled those eyes and said to me, you slept through the night. I'm like, oh, you, she didn't? No. And I'm guessing you didn't? No. Sorry. Well, wake me up if it's a dirty diaper. But there's more to that. Not just the candle not going out. But more importantly, in my opinion, is the first phrase. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. I, the challenge, again, we live in a world that is too colored by its historic male chauvinism and patriarchy to the point that society has even overcorrected instead of corrected. And sadly, so often of 
the current wave of feminism is trying to turn women more into men, when I think the solution would have actually <laughs> tried to develop the, the feminine qualities within men. Uh, if men were the problem, don't become the problem. Balance the contraries and, 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 and help us, please. And we're getting better at that. But sadly, we still live in a day where the world is probably not going to pat women on the back for being the kind of virtuous daughters of God that he intends for them to become. No, he wants them to do all the male kinds of things. Uh, again, there's, there's, there's something better here. And it's, as described in the proclamation of the world and the family, being equal partners. There is equality without equivalence. There is full partnership between helps meet for one another. All that we studied with Adam and Eve, for example. Uh, there's beautiful examples. We saw it with, with uh, Deborah and Jael. Deborah out in the battle and Jael in the home, but they're both fighting the same war. And so whether one is out in the workplace or the other is in the home, if your priorities are, are set and straight and focused on God... Uh, doing what he would have you do, then where it's occurring is less important than how you're doing it. Uh, but I'll say this. Make sure that you know, well, turn to the Lord for your kudos and ask him how you're doing and how he feels about it. Especially to you wonderful women who have spent your lives all... I'll say it about my own mother, who could have been anything and instead chose to be everything for her children. I'm grateful for a wife who has sacrificed so much of her professional potential to fully live the measure of her maternal creation and, and find ways as life as Life has changed and children's needs and schedules and so on have been adjusted that she can take time during the day and, and be something for herself at times where children don't need her to be mom. There's ways to balance it. But the key, in my opinion, is that phrase, perceive that your merchandise is good. And that you're, it's, it's Elder uh, Cook, Elder Quintanel Cook, his talk about women, women in the church. And what did he say? Do the best you can and assume that everyone else is too. That way you don't have to feel judged by others and you don't have to judge anybody else. That was great advice from Elder Cook. And to see something here, perceive, if you're doing the best you can, then perceive that your merchandise is good. And when people say, oh, you're, you're just a stay-at-home mom? <laughs> what do you mean just? Well, you're just an employee. You only had to master one profession. I have to master them all at home. <laughs> And they're all called upon. And that's a good thing. My wife years ago wrote a, a personal essay. And I did, the part I remember best was she said, I think it was her title even, Goliath shouldn't need a pep talk. And what I loved about her comments in this paper was, yeah, Goliath, you don't need a locker room speech like, hey, you're bigger than they are. You're stronger than they are. They can, you can do this. He knew. Duh. He looked down from his nine foot six uh, stature and yeah, I think I got this. And her point in making that comment was she considered it odd whenever prophets and apostles would come to women's conference, for example, 
uh, or the women's session of general conference and say things like, you're awesome, you're amazing. Because my wife was like, well, duh. Uh, Goliath shouldn't need a pep talk. And God's daughters shouldn't have to be reassured that they're doing amazing things. Well, if you know who you are, and you know whose you are, if you perceive that your merchandise is good, and I am making a difference in the place that matters most, right here in my own home among my own children, and husbands better feel that way just as, as strongly as wives do, then I don't need a pep talk. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. The challenge is if you're living in a world that keeps telling Goliath that height is a problem and how embarrassed you should be for being so tall and strong, then I guess you would need a pep talk because you have this sense of inferiority when you should have a sense of, oh, I don't know, I wouldn't say superiority because that's just pride from above, but knowing your merchandise is good. And for all of you sisters that don't need a pep talk, uh, can I at least thank you for the kind of lives that you're living? Uh, and those sisters who do need a pep talk. It's only because you live in a world that has robbed you of your sense of identity and living in a world that does not perceive that your merchandise is good. May I please reassure you that God knows just how good your merchandise is. No wonder he says that it is far above rubies. A few more verses here. Look at 19 to 22. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Those were clothes and colors that were usually reserved for royalty. But this woman is giving those to her own children. She's giving them to her household. She's giving them to the needy, poor, and strangers. These are tapestries that she's weaving. Oh, and, and best of all are those threads of kindness and charity that are woven throughout. I don't know of a better verse or a set of verses to describe the work of the Relief Society than that. That they are th th working hands to the spindle and distaff, but also hands stretched to the poor, because this is who I'm sewing these things for. I think of Tabitha in the book of Acts, this young girl that Peter raises from the dead. And what was she known for and missed so much for? Because she was always looking for ways to make things for those around her, recognizing other people's needs and trying to meet them. And not afraid of the snow, I know how I've clothed you. You will be covered and protected. You, you don't have to fear the elements because you're under the cover of my wings. There's something powerful about the life-saving work of the Relief Society. And you sister saints are giving so much relief to a world that desperately needs it. Clothing the naked and feeding the poor and building faith in the faithless. There is no fullness of the gospel without the work of God's daughters. And together with his sons, we've got work to do. 
and a, a weary world that needs us to do it. In verse 23, we see that her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. And remember, gates is usually where judgment was passed. So you want really wise people at the gates. And her husband is known there. And of course he's considered wise. He chose her after all. <laughs> I mean, look at who he married. Oh yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a man of great wisdom. He should help us make our decisions. Verse 24 and 5. She maketh fine linen and selleth it and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Another nod to her work. But again, it seems like she's going above and beyond. More than just clothe my family, more than cover the needy, I'm making enough fine linen that I can even sell it and deliver things to the merchant. So it goes and, ble and blesses an ever-expanding circle of people. Uh, there's, again, that entrepreneurial spirit, uh, a woman of, of business in the Lord's way. In verse 26, she openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Oh, wisdom and kindness? She's got mind and heart. It's a great set of contraries for, for her to develop. Or 27, she looketh well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of idleness. Not idle on the one extreme, although maybe in our day it's the opposite extreme we need to be more aware of. Uh, not idle, but not burned out either. Yes, the candle is still a, a, a lit at night, but it's not burning her out. And so we need to carefully balance that as well with, oh, yes, be this kind of sister, but also don't run faster than you have strength. Those are things we need to be wise uh, about as well. Verse 28 is one of my favorites because I feel it so strongly about my mother and about my wife. Her children arise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. I'm grateful for a mother that I can rise up and bless because her life has been spent rising up so often to bless us. I'm grateful for you, Mom, and I love you. And I can say the same to my wife, who is the maypole of our family, as she sometimes <laughs> regrets. <laughs> uh, can't have a time to a, a second to herself because everybody always wants to be with her. She's that kind of person. And I don't know of a more kind-hearted and selfless and just champion of her children that will mama bear fight for their every need and, and do her absolute best to meet them. This, this verse of praising, I can do that in a heartfelt way to the women in my life and to all of you incredible sisters out there. I pray that you feel the reality of this verse. I hope that your children are rising up and praising you. And if they're not, wait. Just keep waiting. Motherhood can be a thankless job for a long time. And if you're looking for immediate feedback, or if words of affirmation are your love language, and you're a young mother, yeah, hold out. <laughs> hold out with hope. The day will come. Uh, and let uh, a coup of gratitude or... Uh, smile of satisfaction, let that be sufficient praise for now. And those of us that are on the giving end 
of that praise or should be on the giving end of it, then make sure you give it. Okay, you children, please rise up and bless your mother. And you husbands, please offer your wife more words of praise or, or offers of help or anything else that they need. Okay, a few last verses in this, in this great book then. Verse 29, many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Oh, and I hope every husband feels that way about his wife and every child feels that way about their mother. That, yeah, there's a lot of amazing people out there, but I got the best one of all. And meanwhile, all the neighbors are saying the same thing, and that's good, that's okay. I am grateful that when my wife and I were dating, my wife, my mom sent my wife a note, uh, unbeknownst to me, and just thanked her. We weren't even engaged yet, uh, but I was hoping for it. My mom knew it. Maybe she was trying to sweeten the deal somehow. Uh, but no pressure from mom. She just said to Emily, you know, I don't know what the future will hold. And in a coming day, if you'll be my daughter-in-law or just one of my son's ex-girlfriends. But regardless of what happens, may I thank you for proving to my son that the ideals of womanhood really do exist. And boy, was that insightful. I was grateful to have met someone that in my mind and heart excelled them all and, and proved to me that daughters of God that exceeded all expectation really did exist. Finish the book then in verse 30 and 31. Favor is deceitful. Beauty is vain. Yeah, those things can come and go. But a woman that feareth the Lord, oh, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. What a glorious grand finale to a beautiful book of scripture. One that's been gendering wisdom female all along. And so how fitting to have women take center stage at the end. Virtuous women, that's wisdom for you. Or like we saw back in chapter one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here at the end of chapter 31, what do we find? A woman that feareth the Lord. And that's wise as well. Fearing God, honoring God, putting him first in your life. He's wisdom personified. He's sealed to Sophia. I mean, to think about, he knows better than we do. So keep his commandments. Keep the covenant Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. These incredible words of wisdom, I know we've been jumping all over the place thematically because life tends to do that. And at one moment we need to live this wise way and another moment we need to do that and we're shifting gears constantly. But hopefully the one underlying current is God is inspiring us in the way to live. And it's the best way to live. Don't just hold on to Tevye. As the good book says, actually hold on to the good book itself. And these words have, have passed the test of time. It's not just the wisdom literature of ancient Israel. This is truth, eternal truth. And I pray that we can implement it and be a little wiser ourselves. The way King Benjamin ends his great life-changing address and if you believe these things, see that you do them. Well, that's a pretty good way to end the study of the book of Proverbs, too. If you have 
recognize the wisdom behind these words, then live this way. It really is the best imaginable way to live. If only Solomon could have held on to that perspective. <laughs> That's the irony. Uh, in the book of Proverbs that we associate with Solomon as the wisest of all men, well, if Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon as well, and the assumption is, is that that was the case, there's some evidence of that, although we don't know for sure that all of it was, then he must have written Proverbs on, a, on good days, and he wrote Ecclesiastes on a bad day. Uh, it's kind of like, if a grumpy old man were to write scripture, it would probably sound a lot like Ecclesiastes. I, I, I hate to break that to you, but you've got to brace yourself what we're in for in this small book of scripture. It's still part of the wisdom literature of ancient Israel, and it deserves to be. But because sometimes you can learn from mistakes as well as learning from, from positive examples. And remember Solomon, his life took a downturn. And because of the strange women uh, and the, the many marriages that he, that, that he entered into, it led him down a path that he wasn't supposed to go. President Hinckley once talked about pickle suckers, and he was describing people that just have a sour outlook on life. Ecclesiastes is kind of a pickle-sucking book of Scripture. And there's a lot of canonized negativity here. But understand that there are lessons to be learned as a result. He's not, imp he's not imposing negativity upon us. He's not telling us that you ought to feel this way. He's just telling us how he feels because of some choices that he's made. And he's learned some things to be wiser as a result. We can too. But we do need to be a little careful as we approach the book of Ecclesiastes and not read it as if every verse were establishing true doctrine. Because in many instances, it's doing the exact opposite. Okay? The reason I need to tell you this is because of an experience I had in my first real study of the book of Ecclesiastes. I had read it before my mission, but it was kind of like just so I could say I read this, the scriptures and I got, you know, skimmed, skimmed over it and, and made it through, but didn't really know what it was talking about. Uh, vanity, vanity, all is vanity is kind of all I remembered from it, okay? And that's usually what most people remember if they remember anything from Ecclesiastes. But on my mission, I got a phone call from an, a missionary that was teaching an investigator that had a question or a concern uh, because when this missionary taught them about work for the dead in the old fourth discussion, this uh, investigator said, nope, that's not true, can't be. And the missionary was like, what are you talking about? There's some great verses about this in, in Peter, for example, that talks about work for the dead, let alone all that we see in Doctrine and Covenants 138. Um, what do you mean? And they said, nope, Ecclesiastes says that there's no way that could be true. Now, I have a feeling that this probably came, this question or concern probably came from uh, books that are out, that, that do exist, that are like questions to stump the Mormon missionaries. Uh, I ran into a few people that had read books like that on my mission, and I've seen a few ever since. Uh, but in this case, because, and the reason why is, do you really think some honest, sincere seeker after truth is going to listen to missionaries uh, teach the doctrine of the redemption of the dead, which answers so many questions. The fate of the unevangelized is how it's described in, in scholarly circles. What happens to people who never had the gospel preached to them? It wouldn't be fair of God to condemn them. But Christ was pretty serious when he said that without Christ, you can't come into the kingdom of God. So what do we do? Do we just send them all to hell? That doesn't seem very nice. 
But nobody has a really solid answer for that. Except the Latter-day Saints, when God revealed it all to Joseph Smith, the work for the dead in DNC 127 and 128, and clarified it in 138. It's incredible doctrine. So you mean to tell me that when you're teaching an honest, sincere investigator, that glorious doctrine, that somehow they're going to run to Ecclesiastes? And uh, uh, heaven forbid a verse from Ecclesiastes ever pops into somebody's head unintentionally to establish some kind of doctrinal point? No. This idea comes from people that are trying to make revealed and restored doctrine look anti-biblical. And so they, they dredge up things and take them out of context and rest the scriptures to try to make it look like it contradicts. I mean, skeptics have done that to the Bible itself for centuries. Suggesting, oh, this verse from the Bible contradicts this verse from the Bible. Therefore, the Bible must not be true. Well, it's a little disingenuous for Christians to do that to us when it's been done to them. But they do it. And that was most likely what happened at that point. Now, none of that crossed my mind when I was a 20-year-old missionary. I was just like, huh? Ecclesiastes says there's no such thing as work for the dead? And I was confused because I didn't know my Ecclesiastes. But... This investigator who pretended to threw that verse into the missionary's face and the missionary was scrambling and so he called me and said, Elder Halverson, do you have any response to this? And I'm like, not yet, because I didn't even know the question. Where are you coming from? Well, they turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We'll, we'll get there eventually, but let's start here and then we'll see why, how to build up to it. He turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 and 6 and read, for the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. And then here's the phrase that seems to disprove work for the dead. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Oh. Now, do you see why that verse can be useful in the hands of an anti-Mormon? To take that verse completely out of context and just go, nope, Ecclesiastes says nothing we do on, in this life will affect anyone in the next life. That's it. That's, the dead don't know anything. There's no more reward for them. Judgment has been passed at the moment of death, and that's all there is. And they don't have any part or portion of anything done here under the sun. So you're wasting your time doing all that family history research. You're wasting your time doing baptisms for the dead because you, you can't affect anything on that side. Well, when the missionary first read that verse to me, I was like, oh, okay. I see where that investigator is coming from. That, I don't know what to do with that. At surface value, surface level, I should say, at face value, that does seem to, okay, what do I do? And I said, let me call you back. I need to think harder. Uh, well, like I said, take anything out of context that's going to change the perspective. And even as a 20-year-old missionary, I realized context helps. And so let me read the verse right before and right after. And I thought, ah, what the heck? Why don't I read all of Ecclesiastes tonight? Ah, what the heck? I'll just read all of Ecclesiastes. And I'll try to make sense of how that verse fits. And that changed everything. That's when I realized that Ecclesiastes isn't big on doctrine so much as it is on wisdom literature trying to help you choose a little better how you live your life. 
And because it's so pessimistic in its approach, again, it has a happy moral of the story. Like, don't be like me, learn the lessons that I learned. But he's not trying to establish some kind of theology that solves the issue of the fate of the unevangelized. No, nothing was further from the mind of the writer of Ecclesiastes than work for the dead when he penned that. Because like I said, this is just canonized complaint. This is biblical pickle sucking. <laughs> and it's describing life as so fleeting that it tends to be almost meaningless unless you know what you're living for. And that's the purpose of this book. Uh, if, and sure enough, I called the missionaries again and said, okay, I just finished reading all of Ecclesiastes. And if this investigator is going to take that verse out of context as doctrine, then here's a bunch of other verses I want you to... This is still when I was in my snarky day, and I'm going to fight fire with fire, okay? So show them this verse, and this verse, and this verse, all from Ecclesiastes, and ask them, is that doctrine too? Because if so, it shoots Jesus out of the water. It shoots Christian theology out of the water. Uh, it shoots all kinds of things out of the water. So if you want to go down that road, then go all the way. Or be honest and realize this is not refuting any kind of doctrine at all in that particular verse. And you need to be able to approach the doctrine of redemption of the dead honestly and sincerely and see the questions it does answer and the problems it does solve because it's glorious. Well, rather than give you that, the experience I hope that missionary would give the investigator, Let's do what I did and just study the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's start at the beginning and make it through all of its chapters. We'll catch back up to chapter 9 and see how it actually fits based on nine chapters of study that led up to it. And again, keep an eye out for pessimism and the things that don't bring real happiness compared to the things that actually do. Uh, I actually just read an article uh, in The Atlantic that made me think of Job and made me think of Ecclesiastes. And it told, uh, just in passing, a story about a caliph, a Muslim caliph, that lived in Spain in the 10th century. And he was summing up a life of incredible worldly success. Okay? He was an emir. He was a caliph. And he was at 70 years old at that time. And he wrote, I have now reigned above 50 years in victory and peace. There's a half century under my belt of being the most powerful man I knew. Beloved by my subjects dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies, riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call. And the payoff? This is what he said. I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. Ouch! <laughs> That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And just like this, Amir and Caliph could write so glowingly of his reign, so could King Solomon. Wisest man, richest man, people coming from afar to behold my glory. But how many days of pure and genuine happiness have I known? Oh, his younger years were righteous, so I'm sure he had more than 14. But when all was said and done, what was the point of that? The, the fear that drives me 
in studying the book of Ecclesiastes and in teaching it is not wanting anyone at the end of their lives to look back and have that kind of feeling. My life was a total waste of time. What was the point of all of that? I kept climbing the ladder and only to realize it was leaning against the wrong wall. You've heard that as the good book says, <laughs> right? Well, let's see how it's all portrayed in this beautiful, albeit pessimistic, book of Scripture. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, preacher, that's how we usually refer to the writer of Ecclesiastes. It's the word of the, the name of the book actually comes from. And since he refers to himself as the son of David and the king of Jerusalem, that's why we attribute this to Solomon. Uh, there's other evidence within the book that he would be a pretty good source for the kinds of things that are being said. But then again, it could be some other later writer, even anonymous, we don't know, who's just calling himself the preacher because I'm trying to preach some things and do it from almost from reverse psychology approach. I'm going to give you some negativity in hopes you'll find a better positive life to live as a result of it. Okay? And the moral of the story is given us from the very beginning. The thesis statement starts the book in this case. It's in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, we usually think of vanity being staring at yourself in the mirror all day long. And look at how beautiful I am. Well, the real meaning of this term vanity is it's fleeting. It's, it passes so quickly. And maybe that's where we get the idea of being vain, that we want to hold on to our youthful beauty forever, but it, it comes and goes, like we saw at the end of Proverbs 31. So what will be lasting? What can I actually hold on to? That's the problem that the preacher is dealing with. And he's going to try all kinds of different options. Well, maybe this will bring me happiness. Maybe this will give life meaning. And then it falls through his fingers. He's like, nope, cross that off the list. What's next? And he's trying all these different things and crossing them all off until by the end of the book, he finally gives you the, the grand reveal. This is probably what I should have been looking for all along. And that's where he leaves us. Okay? How's that for a, a quick synopsis of the book? But let's watch how it unfolds. Verse 3, what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Because people live and die, and the sun rises and sets, and the wind blows back and forth, and rains fall, and rivers flow, only to return back to the sky. That's what he says in the next bunch of verses, until he gets to verse 9, where he concludes, The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Can you sense this jaded old man just lamenting over the how shallow life seems to have been for him. What's the point of anything? If it, nothing ever changes, it always stays the same. You think something new, it, nope, it's been there before. And just like the water cycle or the wind blowing back and forth, what's the point of it all? Where's the prophet? In verse 16 through 18, he says, I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate. I have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. That sound like Solomon? Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. That's what the whole book of Proverbs was about. I perceived, though, that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. 
Now, that's one of the first places I would want to ask that investigator. Is that doctrine too? Does God want us to remain in our ignorance? Because, <laughs> hey, if you learn more, you're just going to sorrow more. You open your mind to the world, you're just going to see all of its negativities. So, yeah, be closed-minded and be shallow and just be... Ignorance is bliss. Really? After all the praise you heaped on wisdom for 31 solid chapters in Proverbs? And now in just the stroke of a pen? Ah, forget it all. Wow. If this is you, Solomon, are you doing okay? This sounds, doesn't sound like you. Well, turn to chapter 2. And in verse 1, I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. So once I maxed out on all that wealth and wisdom and realized it was pretty meaningless, I thought, well, might as well go have some fun then. And I'll live it up and we'll see if mirth and pleasure bring me the, the meaning. <laughs> the, I should have thought about that one before. <laughs> no, that's not going to work. This is total vanity and cross, so cross that off the list. There goes hedonism. What's next? Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad and of mirth, what doeth it? So it's not just meanings not to be found in more fun. So in verse 3, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine. But that didn't do anything. That was as, as vain as anything I had tried before. Was this before he wrote those things about wine and its mockery in the book of Proverbs? I don't know. But cross that off the list, and what am I going to try next? Verse 4, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. Oh, surely that will bring meaning and purpose to my life. And he talks of gardens and orchards and pools and servants and flocks and herds. <sighs> but it wasn't found in possessions or property either. So what do I turn to now? Verse 8, I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. Well, that, that didn't last long. So cross that off the list as well. So it wasn't riches, it wasn't wealth. I'm starting to run out of things to try. In some ways, this reminds if you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, that's hilarious because you have a guy who's just, what's the point of it all? He lives the same day, day after day after day. Nothing ever changes. I mean, the first part of, Proverbs, of Ecclesiastes was right in his case. Something new, there's never anything new. It's the exact same 24-hour period, day after endless day. So what does he do? He goes through all these different things. And at first, it's like euphoric, like, I can't die. This is amazing. And so he's just going to live it up and eat, drink, and, to meet him and be merry, because tomorrow I don't die. It's incredible until he finds how meaningless it all is. And then he overswings the pendulum and it becomes complete depression, like I'm stuck and there's no meaning to any of this. And so he like tries to kill himself in all these different ways just to end it. But no, he just comes back, wakes up the next morning to do it all over again. And it's only by the end of the movie that he realizes, if I only have one day to live, I better do the very best I can to progress. Because even though the day doesn't change, the day does change me. And I'm, I'm becoming a pianist, even though my piano teacher thinks I only come for one lesson. I love that scene. Uh, there's just, philosophically, that movie teaches some incredible things. And they're similar to the lessons of Ecclesiastes. But we're still at this stage where the preacher is crossing things off the list. And how do I make tomorrow more meaningful than today? Because today didn't do it for me.
Well, next on the list, verse 9 and 10. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. But all that popularity, all that power, all that esteem, worldly greatness, reputation. No, I knew better than that. And even all of my wisdom, what was it for? What do I do now? Verse 11, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. So it wasn't there either. Despite all of my productivity, all my incredible accomplishments, at the end of the day, those left me feeling as hollow as, as the hedonism that I had succumbed to before that. Now, what's the purpose of it all? In verse 14, I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all, and that one event is death. The wise die, the foolish die, the, the proud die, the humble die, the, the people that are strong, the people that are weak, the people that are rich, the people that are poor. Death comes to us all. And if death is the great leveler, then what was the point of trying to rise or avoid falling beforehand? Life is meaningless because it comes to an end, is what he was saying. In verse 15 and 16, Then said I in my heart, As it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. So what was the point of it all? The irony is <laughs> the wise will be forgotten, just like the foolish. Uh, preacher, we're still studying your words two and a half millennia later. Yeah, this has had some good staying power for some reason. You are remembered. So what's the point? You've got some things to teach. But he didn't feel that way. Therefore, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. I mean, what's the point if you're just going to die and leave it all behind you? The next few verses he points out, and if you're going to leave what you've left to someone that's no smarter than you, in fact, probably won't be as smart as you, what was the point of the inheritance? I worked hard to amass all this stuff to pass it down to, to nothing? No, what a waste of my life if it can't last forever. So what's his takeaway? His first of many attempts at coming up with a conclusion. Verse 24, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. Now, like I said, that's take one on what's the moral of the story, preacher. And on the one hand, this sounds a lot like eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah, just eat and drink. And he's going to use that phrase often throughout the rest of the book. But don't think of it in terms of King Noah from the Book of Mormon's Eat, Drink, and Be Merry for Tomorrow We Die. Because his was complete hedonism without seeing its shallowness. It was like, hey, if this life is all we get, then live it up. That was the, the early Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. Okay, the first one. 
But this preacher has outgrown that one. And so he's not saying eat, drink, and be, and be merry because it's so much fun. It's no, there's no purpose in that. But preserving your life by eating your food and drinking your water. And then the next phrase, and making your soul enjoy good in your labor. Uh, that does come from the hand of God. That even if there's nothing beyond this life, and that's a big question that he's, he's grappling with. If this is all I get, then I guess I should enjoy the good of my labor. If this is it, make the most of it. And that's the later Bill Murray. Okay, Keep practicing the piano. And enjoy the opportunity you have for one more day to live and to grow and progress. Even if there's a finish line that you, and nothing beyond it. Okay, take advantage of the time that you have to enjoy good in your labor. It's with that in mind that chapter 3 makes a little bit more sense than just a beautiful song by the birds. Okay, if you remember the, the song, Turn, 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 from the birds, this is their lyrics. And they do an amazing job of staying as close to the text as they possibly can. It's incredible that it fits the, the rhythm and, and, and rhyme and meter of their, of their song. Verse 1, you'll be familiar with this. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. And then verse 2 through 8, here's the rest of the song. He's going to give you examples of these things that can come and go and have seasons when they're needed and seasons when they're not. A time to be born and a time to die. I'm having a hard time reading this without wanting to sing along. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get, and a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. This is all just part of the grand cycle of life, with its ups and downs, and its goods and bads. To everything, yes, there is a season, but each season has its own purpose. So in those seasons to eat, go ahead and eat. And those seasons to drink, go ahead and drink. There'll be other seasons when you're not doing those things. But if you can find the good of every season and the reason God allows you to go through those ups and downs of mortal existence, then perhaps you'll receive them with a little more grace than the preacher has been doing. I almost, it's like self-reflection or self-therapy, trying to walk himself through it. I'm just in a different time, and I need to allow this time to serve its purpose, whatever that purpose might be. As a result, he gives us a second takeaway after this little bit of self-therapy. <laughs> Verse 12, he says, I know that there is no good in them, in and of themselves, that is, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. So there's his second attempt at a wise conclusion. Do good and feel good about it. And then he repeats his first attempt from chapter 2. 
here in chapter 3, verse 13. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So this is uh, 2.0 is a repeat of 1.0 with the addition of do good and rejoice in it. Okay, Keep your life going. Allow it to perform its purposes, whatever those might be. uh, And rejoice that you have a chance to to get some good from it. And hopefully it does some good to other people too. And that's a step in a a better direction. But he doesn't sound completely convinced because in verse 16 and 17 he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and it shouldn't be, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there, and that shouldn't have happened either. I mean, this is among people that should know better. Place of judgment, that's the state. Place of righteousness, that's the church. And yet wickedness is there? People that are not living up to their, the expectations of their office? Keep reading. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Now, is this cynicism speaking? Like, yeah, I knew they couldn't be trusted. Oh, everyone's might have a good surface level, but dig a little deeper and everyone's flawed to the core. Uh, maybe. Then again, is it simply resignation? Kind of like Job gets to the point in his conversations of, there are some things that can't be explained by the sin equals suffering model. Because there are some righteous people that suffer. I just never thought it would happen to me. And there are some wicked people who tend to prosper. That complicates my mental model. How do I make sense of this? I, I think the preacher here is doing something similar of just resigning himself to the reality that some people are good and some people are bad. And some people that should be good aren't. And I guess I'm just going to leave that in the hands of God. Instead of saying vanity and vexation of spirit every single day that life isn't fair and things should be different, that's a frustrating way to live, believe me. Instead, I'm going to leave it in God's hands and let God judge these things. That's, That's wise. He then says in verse 19, For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast for all his vanity. Oh, we're back to that again, are we? <laughs> he has these moments of like spiritual breakthroughs or clarity of thought. Like, okay, there's, a, yeah, okay, well, all right, fine. Ah, but I'm still going to die. And everyone else will too. And it always drags him back to that. And Here's again a, a verse that I would point out to my investigator friend saying, uh, is the preacher establishing doctrine here like you say he's establishing doctrine there? Really? Because that kind of goes against uh, dominion given Adam and Eve in the garden over the animals of the, of, the, of the earth. No, he's not speaking spiritually. He's speaking biologically. We all have breath coming and going. We're all going to die when all is said and done. Okay? This is, he's talking... This is just sheer scientific data, not theological doctrine. So please keep those separate. In verse 20, here's another thing that would uh, skewer the doctrine of this investigator in other areas. All go unto one place. All are of the dust and all turn to dust again. I I suppose I could take that first phrase out of context and just say, oh, all go unto one place. So I don't know why you're teaching heaven and hell. Uh, I don't know why you're talking about anything. No. He's not talking about final judgment. He's talking about final days on earth. 
And that, yes, ultimately we all go to one place, namely the grave. But after that, oh yes, there's some differentiation. Verse 22, he takes his third stab at a wise conclusion and says, Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? I don't know what the future will hold. I don't know what will come beyond the grave. So what do I do on this side of it? Well, like I said before, I'll rejoice in my own works. There's a certain stoicism here. I mean, every once in a while he lashes out in over-emotion. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, vexation of spirit. But then he kind of settles down into kind of a a calm stoicism of this is all we're going to get, and so let's just face it well and do our best with it. There's nothing better than that, as he says in that verse. But then we turn the page and see in Ecclesiastes 4 some ongoing struggles. Verse 1, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Back to his pessimism. Maybe death's a good thing. Because if life is so unfair that the wicked rule and the righteous suffer. This is back to Job when it's like, I, I long for the day of the grave. I wish I'd never been born. Curse you, mother, for ever, give, ever giving birth to me. And the preacher here is feeling something similar. In fact, he goes beyond it, verse 3, Yea, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. So, better to die than to live? Well, if that's true, then let's take it back a notch. Better to never have lived. Then you don't even have to die. Because uh, you never lived to begin with. It's perfect. Makes you wonder, actually, is this another subtle nod to the doctrine of premortality? We saw that hinted at in Job. We'll see it more clearly stated in Jeremiah. But here, if it's better that you have not yet been, not yet, is, is mortality unavoidable? Then can I, can I at least stay a little longer in premortality and try to postpone my, my date with death? Because once I start life, it's, I'm just a ticking time bomb until the clock eventually reaches zero. So positive, right? Verse 4. Again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. We're back to that idea of finding purpose in a sense of accomplishment and people looking up to you because of what you've done in life. Nah, forget it. That's just travail. That's all that work. And when all is said and done, yeah, somebody, your neighbor might envy you. <laughs> He wanted what you got, but wasn't willing to put himself through what you did to get there. Well, he's going to die, and so am I. And so if we all end up in the same spot, then what was the point of it all? For him or for me, forget it. But then he gives you some wise counsel at the end. And in verse 9 through 12, this, this is a beautiful moment of some light breaking through the darkness. Two are better than one, he says, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe unto him that is alone when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. 
Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I actually love this passage. He gives us several examples of two is better than one. Uh, you can lift each other up, you can keep each other warm, you can defend and protect one another. But even best is what he says at the end. Let's go. For, if two is good, then three is even better. This isn't two's company and three's a crowd. No, this is three. Oh, really cements the relationship because a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's one of my favorite phrases when it comes to marriage. Because marriage is not meant to be a partnership between two. It's not a dynamic duo. It's a terrific trio. And God is supposed to be the third partner. It's this triangle. We talked about this with Hezekiah's tunnel, right? It's not two people digging through the darkness trying to find each other. It's two people seeking God and they'll find each other once they've found him. And it's that threefold cord. In my experience watching couples struggle, in many cases, it's because they kicked God out of the relationship first and then ended up kicking their partner out of the relationship second. I know that's not always the case in divorces, but sometimes it is. And if you let that first, that third chord fray, that was what was binding the other two together, even more than the two trying to hold on to each other. It's a threefold cord that is not quickly broken. So remember that in your relationships, whether it's husbands and wives, or even friendships, whatever they might be, mission companionships, you name it. He then says in verse 13, as his conclusion, how oh, better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will not more be admonished. Yeah, there's some pickle sucking there, but I do wonder if that passage is autobiographical on both halves. By now, is Solomon feeling like an old and foolish king? Wondering what's he gotten himself into with all these <laughs> diplomatic marriages? All of the worldliness and materialism that he's succumbed to. I'm old and I've grown foolish. I spent 13 years on my own, own house when I only spent seven years on the house of the Lord. Why did I care so much about the lions carved on the sides of my, of the steps up to my ivory throne. That was vanity in more ways than one. Yes, I've become an old and foolish king, but the first half, is that autobiographical too? I was a poor and wise child. Poor in terms of how I viewed myself. I didn't think I was better than anyone else. I I knew I needed the help of God. And so that was the wisest thing I ever did was admit my lack of wisdom and turn to God that he might give me his. And he did. And though I was an inexperienced youth on the throne, God opened my mouth and filled it with words of wisdom that have resonated through time ever since. Can I go back to those days? Have you ever felt that way of missing the older version of you? that I had more faith as a child, or I, I prayed more sincerely, and I knew God would come through for me? Well, in that case, then yes, being a poor but wise child is better than being a king if your kingship is colored by foolishness. The good thing is even old and foolish kings can become 
children again if they'll put off the natural man and become a child, a saint through the atonement of Christ. Ecclesiastes 5 then follows with verse 1, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Now that verse is a little confusing. Verse 5 helps us understand it a little bit when he says, Better is it that thou shouldst not vow than that thou shouldst vow and not pay. Which is, uh, that could have fit in the book of Proverbs, right? That's, that's good wisdom. Yeah, that's good advice to follow. Uh, don't make promises you don't intend to keep, is way, the way we might say it. But in the context of what he was saying in verse 1 and 2 about going to the house of God and not being rash with your mouth, and then saying it's better not to vow at all, I think that's what he's getting at. It's one thing to go to God and make these promises. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be that. Oh, did you intend to keep them? Because you're in a, a worse spot uh, if you now are breaking, breaking covenants that you made. So now go back to verse 1 and 2, and I love the way he puts it. When you go to the house of God, again, what's driving you there? Is it that you're desperate uh, or you need to be bailed out of some situation? And so you're going to make some rash vow to God that if only you'll spare me from this, then I'll, I'll... Careful. Do this instead. Instead of being hasty to utter anything before God that's going to get you in trouble later on, what should we do? Notice the first line. Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. I love that. When you spend time with God, is it to give him your wish list and or his to-do list? Or is it simply to listen, to hear, to feel, to lay out our problems before him but just allow his wisdom to penetrate our hearts and fill our minds with possible solutions. I'm, I don't need to make rash promises. I just need to be more ready to hear. And God, who is aware of my needs and has wiser ways to meet them, will be able to help me navigate these things. That, that would be good counsel to follow at any time. In verse 10, though, we get back to vanity. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. And here's why. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? I actually remember years ago, in a fifth Sunday meeting with the youth, we were teaching them some principles of personal finance. We wanted to help them navigate that part of life because it's important. And it was so funny to see among the youth they were so excited about making money as adults. Because, I mean, again, it's this, my goods will increase. I can actually buy the stuff I want. But as we were describing the need to budget things and how much does life actually cost when you're adulting? And, okay, you make this much and their eyes light up like, no way, that's amazing. And it's like, and then you have to pay this for your mortgage and you have to pay this for health insurance and this for car insurance and this is it. And, you could see their wide eyes with the, the income get smaller and smaller and smaller 
as they just like, oh man. It, it, and it dawned on them what the preacher is saying here. When goods increase, so do the people who eat them. And yes, my income has risen, but I think my expenses have risen even faster. And uh, this is, this is going to be hard. Yes, all the more reason to learn to budget now when you're young, okay? And you'll be able to make it. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting, though, what he's describing here beyond just that, that we live in a consumer society. And consumerism and commercialism drive so much to the point that having things isn't even as important as getting things. Because as soon as we've got something and then we now have it, we're not satisfied with what we have. We want to get something else. And, and society and culture just kind of make sure that's the case. There's always something more and planned obsolescence and, and the new upgrade and you got to get this new thing. Well, that actually is vanity in more ways than one because there will always be something more beyond that. We, society convinces us that we should have an insatiable appetite for more, more, more. And that leads us in negative directions. So be careful. Now, verse 12, completely unrelated. I love this verse because I used to quote it on my mission. Uh, this is the one, I think it was when I was studying Ecclesiastes to be able to respond to that missionary's investigator that I stumbled across this phrase and I fell in love with it to the point that when I was at the end of a long trade-off, this often happened when we would do overnight trade-offs uh, with new missionaries and we just wanted to teach them how hard they could work in a day. And it worked because by the time we got home at night, they were absolutely exhausted. And ready to crash. It's like, no, no, wait, wait, we still got a plan for tomorrow. We still got to write in our journals. We got some work to do before 1030. But when 1030 comes, lights out and you're, you deserve it. And right about oh, 1029 or so, as the missionary was ready to crash, I'd say, you know, Elder, today was an Ecclesiastes 512 day. And they'd say, well, what does Ecclesiastes 512 say? And I always say, eh, it's worth looking up. Go check it out. And their curiosity got the better of them. So they'd find their scriptures and start turning through pages. And they, it took a long time. They're turning and they're like, ah, where the heck is Ecclesiastes? I'd laugh. And, Old Testament, take a look. They'd stumble through and finally find Ecclesiastes 5.12, which says, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. After which I would say, enjoy your sweet sleep, elder." You earned it today. <laughs> For the next eight hours, it's all yours and glory in it because you have labored to the point that this sleep will be sweet, sweeter than, than usual. And it, and it always was. I've said this before, but when I was in high school and went to stake youth committee meetings in the morning and then went to my ward and then went to a friend's ward and by the end of the day I had spent eight hours at church and I was pretty stoked about it. I told my dad who was in the stake presidency at the time, I said, Dad, I had an eight-hour church day. It was awesome. And he just smiled and said, ah, that's a good start. That's a good start. Uh, for him, an eight-hour church day was probably short. <laughs> Got off for good behavior. But then he said something I'll never forget. He said, son, Nothing beats exhaustion in the Lord's service. And I felt that most days on my mission. And I've felt that a lot of days since then. But my dad was right. And so was the preacher here. That the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. 
and nothing sweeter than when that labor is for God. That's the exhaustion that can't be beat. So what is the preacher's fourth attempt to give us a grand takeaway from what he's wrestling with? Chapter 5, verse 18. Behold that which I have seen. Here's the moral to my story. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. That's basically what he's been saying from the very beginning. It's still all about getting the most out of your mortality and calling it good. Being satisfied with whatever you have to eat and whatever you have to drink and whatever labor you can perform and seeing the good in that. Good enough. Well, not for long, because chapter 6 continues with more vanity. And no matter how much you have or how long you live, you're eventually going to die and it'll all be lost. So verse 6, yea, though he live a thousand years, twice told. If you got your thousand and it came to an end, he's like, oh, actually, can we do double or nothing? Sure. Here's another thousand. Even at the end of that, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. He's back to that. He can't get over the specter of the grave and thinking, if that's where I end up and that's it. Like I said in our study of the book of Job, Judaism focuses on this life more than the next. And that can be oversimplified. Uh, it's not a complete all eggs in this life's basket. But for the most part, it's much more God will bless you in the here and now. And so live well in the here and now. And that, if that's the mentality of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, without any thought of what's ahead or what's beyond, I mean, it's like what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men most miserable. If this life is all we get, then I want my money back. Well, the preacher wants his money back. And he had a lot of money. <laughs> it's, it's the grave and there's no way to avoid it. In verse 12, For who knoweth what is good for a man in this life, all the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? I call this the myopia of mortality. Myopia is, I don't know if it's nearsighted or short-sighted. I always get those two mixed up. But I just can't see beyond the veil. And if this life is all I get, then I am of all men most miserable. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes is the most miserable gospel or scriptural writer, you'll see. Because he's working under the assumption, it seems, that this life is all I get. Well, it's not. And God has assured us of that. And that ought to give us a different perspective on what we should be doing with this life and where we should find its meaning. I mean, he's, he gets close to it. Eat and drink and make, take good in the labor you perform. But man, there's such a higher purpose. Because this life, the labors we perform, aren't just to get us through this life. They're meant to prepare us for the life to come. And that's worth living well for. So, no myopia of mortality for us, okay? See beyond this life. Try to peer past the grave and realize there are reasons to live well. In verse, or chapter 7, he says in verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. 
And then he adds in verse 6, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Man, he can't even find happiness in happiness. Yikes. So why laugh? Why enjoy life? Oh, sorrow is better. Just If it's going to end up in sorrow, they might as well just hold on to sorrow all along. And you don't have anything to lose. I mean, if Eeyore wrote scripture, it would sound like this, right? Ah, yeah. then verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? Now, I actually like that phrase. I'm not sure if I like the way he probably intended it, where it's this thought of, hey, if God has made your life crooked and it's just going to be hard and it's going to go to this and you got to do that and it's mostly downhill, then what, are you going to change it? You're going to have to die. There's, if, the, if the path leads towards the grave, there's no way to turn out of it. Okay, that's pretty, that's pretty pessimistic. But on the other hand, if I, like my investigator friend, if I take this verse out of context, but do it for a good purpose rather than a, a negative one, I do love what he says, who can make that straight which God hath made crooked? Isaiah is going to wrestle with this later when he talks about the wicked will, there will come a day where people will call good evil and evil good. And bitter will taste like sweet and sweet will taste like bitter and light for darkness, darkness for light. It's going to be a topsy-turvy, upside-down kind of a world. And welcome to the 21st century. But the way it's said here in Ecclesiastes, I love, because he's telling, it's not going to work. Sweet is still sweet, no matter how bitter you call it. And darkness is still darkness, even if you relabel it light. If God has made something crooked, if he has said this is not the way you're supposed to live, if he's called sin, sin, then no matter how much we normalize it, and no matter how much we try to defend it and justify it and rationalize it and, and make it all seem okay, we cannot make straight what God has defined as crooked. And doing so, that's vanity. That's vexation of spirit. That's, as Elder Haven used to say, that's creating a virtual reality that isn't reality itself. How about this verse? Verse 15. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. And that really is the topsy-turvy world that he's been wrestling with. And that Job discovered, like we saw earlier, how is it possible that just righteous people end up dying? And yet wicked people end up prolonging their days. It's not fair. Well, you're right. This life only isn't meant to be. As Elder Packer used to say, if life is a three-act play, Premortality is act one, act two is mortality, and act three is post-mortality. If we forgot act one and walked into the theater late, not realizing all that went before, then we're going to be confused from the get-go. And if we leave early and don't stay to act three to see the loose ends tied up and people actually get what they, what they deserved, then yeah, act two is a mess. And the preacher here seems to confine himself to act two, and no wonder he's so frustrated. It doesn't make any sense. Well, trust that it will be sorted out in the next life. It will. Then go on to chapter 8, 
And he says in verse 8, there is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. In other words, you can't push back death. Neither hath he power in the day of death. There's no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. Interesting way he puts it. There is no escaping the grave. You can't control your own spirit. How it comes into the mortal body, nor how it leaves it. So, if I don't have power over my own life, that's why King Benjamin says that God lends you breath. You don't even own it. That's how pathetic we are. Uh, even our, the air in our nostrils is on loan. And we have to return the loan every few seconds. So what am I supposed to do? Well, we'll see. Verse 12 and 13. Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, that's all this unfairness he's been wrestling with, Yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. Oh, okay. Well, this is our first real hint that he does have some sense of an afterlife, some sense of ultimate justice. He's wrestling with the realities of an unfair world and righteous suffering and wicked prospering. But how's he going to navigate it? Well, even though it doesn't look good, even though it makes no sense to me at all, yet surely I know it will be well with those that fear God. And it's not going to be well with those that don't. So let me just trust in the meantime that it's better to do good than to do wicked. Yes, we'll both end up in the same spot, grave-wise. But maybe life-wise, there's some kind of difference. And maybe, just maybe, there's an afterlife-wise where it makes all the difference. We're getting closer here. But then again, I'm stuck in this life, so what am I going to do? Verse 14, there is a vanity which is done upon the earth that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. <sighs> it's funny how you, it's you, not funny. I'm sorry. Sorry, preacher. You're going through it. I get it. Uh, but it's like he has these moments of clarity, these moments of hope, and he says something positive, and then he gets sucked right back down into the reality of, of his worldview. So verse 12 and 13, with its glimmer of hope, didn't last long before it got slammed down into verse 14. We're back down to it. That's my conclusion. Death is it. So if, what do I do if this life is all I get? Well, verse 15, he'll give us our, his fifth attempt to summarize his takeaway. He says, then I commended mirth. I guess it's better to be happy than sorrowful after all. Because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat, keep doing that, and to drink, keep doing that, and to be merry, keep doing that, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God giveth him under the sun. And again, not quite the eat, drink, and be merry of King Noah, uh, a less hedonistic one, but eat, drink, and be merry that you get to keep eating and drinking. Uh, I'm not describing gluttony and alcoholism, just survival. Yeah, that's it. I get to survive. I get to live another day. And even though the grave is going to come, if I can push it back another day, all the better. Maybe that's all I should be content with. 
Chapter 9, then, is where we'll come back to where that investigator first prompted me to study Ecclesiastes. But let's read verse 2 first. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. Now already we're seeing in this chapter, we're not establishing true doctrine here. Because if we're assuming that God doesn't care if you're good or wicked, then we've got major problems. If we assume that it doesn't matter in the eternal scheme of things, if you're sacrificing or not sacrificing, if you're, if you're clean or dirty, then we have thrown morality completely out the window. So, no, here in Ecclesiastes 9, of all places, beware of reading these verses as if we are establishing doctrine. No, we are just lamenting death. That's it. Verse 5 and 6, then, is this verse that it was thrown in my face. We'll read it again here. For the living know that they shall die. That at least beats the dead, because the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward. We're not establishing that there's no hope for those in the next life. We're simply saying, as far as mortality is concerned, if I'm alive, at least I know it. If I'm dead, then the mortal experience has come and gone, and that's it for me. I can't change any of what my life was like. Keep reading. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Only as far as looking from a mortal lens is concerned, neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. This is not doctrine. This is not a denial of work for the dead. This is simply a recognition that death ends life on this side of it. Well, duh. <laughs> we all can agree on that. But if we can understand that this life is not all we get, then it changes everything. It changes the perspective of the preacher and gives them some hope for things. Not just beyond this life, but meaning within this life. Okay? Keep reading now. Verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. And that's not doctrine either. That's not theology he's establishing. It's simply the attitude that we bring when we think that this life is all that we get. Then sure, there's nothing in the grave except a corpse slowly decaying. Sad, sad to think, put it in those terms. Verse 11, he then says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. Well, there's some more pessimism for you. Why even run if it's not always the fastest that win? Don't even start the race. Why fight if sometimes the weaker army actually comes off victorious, why, why try if luck plays a part? You ever played a board game or a card game that's pure luck? Yeah, it kind of sucks the joy out of it. 
I remember that hitting me as a kid because I used to love playing war with like my siblings where you just have, each have a stack of cards and you put one down and if yours is higher than the others then you win that, that pair and then you keep doing it. But there's no, there's no skill in it at all. It's not about speed. It's, it's just the stack that you happen to have. And when it dawned on me, I can play war by myself. And yeah, either way I'll lose, but either way I'll win. What was the point of victory, of, 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 the, of the game then? Yeah. And so ever since then, I don't really like games that are 100% luck. But thankfully, there's not many of those. Most of them have at least some element of luck, and that can be frustrating, believe me. But usually there's enough element of skill to make it worth playing the game, fighting the fight, running the race. Oh, it is worth trying in life. Yes, you're right. Time and chance happeneth to us all. But that's not what life boils down to. This is not a purely deterministic world. It's not fatalism. It's not everything's been set and it's all just biological and you have no agency and there is no choice in the matter and you just live your life. It, whether it's predestination from a Calvinist perspective or predestination from a purely scientific one. We don't believe in either of those false doctrines, okay? Chance and luck, time, sure. But choice and agency and repentance and, and interaction with God and with each other and decisions to make and consequences to live. Play the game. Run the race. And with God's help, win it. We won't see the, the final standings until after this life anyway, okay? Ecclesiastes 10, then, just a couple of verses to highlight. Verse 1, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. Uh, so doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. I'm not going to say much about that verse, but that is where the idea of a fly in the ointment comes from. Uh, that it can, uh, it just seems to ruin everything. It gets, it's, the, the ointment of the apothecary was supposed to be, smell beautiful. But man, you got some a fly in that ointment, and they're dead, and it stinks now. Okay? Is that your perspective on all of life? Are you, are you, ah, preacher, you're talking about more than just ointment, aren't you? Are you talking about existence? And are you so focused on a few flies that you think the whole thing stinks? That sounds like what you're saying. Verse 10 if the iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then must he put to more strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. I actually like that verse because it's the suggestion that if you don't work smarter, you will have to end up working harder. That's the idea. If, if you're chopping wood and the axe is dull, oh, you're going to have to put to a lot more strength. If you had the wisdom instead to actually sharpen the axe, isn't that Stephen Covey, sharpen the saw? And if you'll take time to do that and work a little smarter, you won't have to work so hard. That's good counsel. That could have fit in Proverbs as well. Or verse 20, Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. That's where we get the phrase, a little bird told me. And so, how did you know about that? I didn't think anybody new. When we say the walls have ears, that's the same idea here. Be careful what you say, even behind closed doors. 
because chances are the word will get out somewhere that you're speaking evil of the king. Keep going, chapter 11, verse 1, very famous phrase, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. And that's great counsel, that if you will be generous, it will come back to bless you. We saw that brought up frequently in, the, in Proverbs. That is a wise way to live. Yes, that bread will return. And it's not just soggy bread that you're getting. Okay, God is taking care of you. Or verse 4, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. This is another one that would fit better in Proverbs. Because you remember the proverb where he says, Oh, there's going to be people that won't plow because it's cold out. Oh, come on, are you looking for excuses? Same thing here. Oh, it, it looks like it might be windy today, and that would scatter the seeds. And so now nah, we, we better not we better not do anything here. Oh, the, the clouds, it looks like it might rain, so let's not go out in the fields and work. Now, there's a contrary here. Yes, be observant and be wise, but if what you're observing is excuses on the horizon that you might be able to take advantage of to get out of doing something, uh, then no. Don't end up getting paralyzed by negative possibilities. There will be a leap of faith required, but take it, okay? With wisdom and foresight, but take those leaps and, and get the work done. Or what he says in verse 9 and 10, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment, Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Oh, and you were doing pretty well till that last word. Really? You're just going to throw away childhood and youth as meaningless and fleeting and passing? Well, I guess they are passing. And looking back, they were fleeting. The time did pass really quick. But they weren't vanity. They, they weren't meaningless. So... I do want to rejoice in my youth while I have it. I do want to, most of all, do the things that, that God will judge me righteously for. Because that's the concern he tells you in the middle. God will judge you about these things. So uh, I'm not saying live it up in your youth. I'm saying be wise with how you live in your youth. Otherwise it will be vain in the wrong way. Ecclesiastes 12 then gives us our sixth and final summary. Looking back after 11 chapters worth of oh, wrestling with things and usually descending into pessimism, though occasionally coming up for air and looking around going, okay, well, at least I've got food to eat and water to drink and have another day of life to live. I'll take it. Thanks. Well, here's the ultimate. He starts in verse 8 with his repeated... Uh, thesis statement, vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. So I'm still sticking to those guns. Life, mortal life that is, is fleeting and temporary. You cannot hold on to it forever. Uh, as a result, verse 12, one last complaint. And further, by these my son be admonished, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So the the thing that defined Solomon, his wisdom, he throws that under the bus one last time. <laughs> All this study, 
Well, if you were in grad school as long as I was, uh, maybe you'll feel that way. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. Then again, I'm grateful that the Doctrine and Covenants tells us that what we learn in this life is actually one of the few things we will take with us into the next. So much our advantage in the world to come. So it's not weariness of flesh. It's not vanity. But that long list that you gave us early on that you kept adding to, <laughs> all those boxes, are, not boxes you checked, but lines you crossed off. Nope, it's not mirth, not pleasure, not laughter, not wealth, not women, not wine, not any of those things. What is it? What is it boiled down to? Well, here's his ultimate conclusion. Verse 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And this is his, his final one. It's the, his final verses. He's got to say it now or he's not going to say it at all because the death of this book is right around the corner, even if you get to outlive it by a little. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And that's it. Pen down. No more vanity or vexation of spirit. I think I'm okay with that last thought. It still doesn't go far enough from a Christian perspective into a, a testimony of the life to come. Okay, it's not that far. But as far as this life is concerned, with at least a hint that there's probably something beyond, as far at least judgment, if nothing else, then what's my counsel? My final words of advice. Honor God. Fear Him. That is the beginning of wisdom. And now it's the end of the wisdom I will give you. Uh, it's keep His commandments. It's live the best life you can because that's your whole duty. I don't know what's going, what'll come beyond this, the preacher might admit. But I'm going to leave that in God's hands. And maybe that's the wisest thing I can do. And just take every day that he's given me and keep eating and drinking so I get more of those days and do all I can to do good and rejoice in that labor. Hope that that good does good to other people. Throughout it all, honor God, keep his commandments. I guess that's really what mortality boils down to. I guess that's enough. Maybe it's not so vain as I thought. Maybe it's Maybe I shouldn't feel so vexed as I normally do. I'll take what God gives me and leave the rest in his hands. President Irene once talked about his own father. Incredible man, a man of science and also a man of faith. Those aren't mutually exclusive. And he was talking about his father's final days. And his dad said something. <laughs> President Irene even said, I don't even know if he knew I was there to talk to. But he just said something as I was helping him along. And his father's words here are profound. Elder Irene said, Even in the confusion of the last night I spent with him, he gave me some advice. I was helping him walk. I'm not even sure he knew I was there. But very clearly, almost with a booming voice, he said, Well, let's just do the homework tonight, and we'll see how the exam goes in the morning. Doesn't that sound like someone who spent his life as a teacher, a professor? But then President Irene said, He's getting the grade now, and he spent a life doing as much homework as he could. Most of us could move profitably toward a little more homework. 
and leave the grades for tomorrow. That just might be the best summary of Ecclesiastes you could ask for. What does this life boil down to? Do the best homework that you possibly can. And then just trust the divine professor when, when the grades come in. It's not vanity. It's not vexation. It's trust in God and doing the best you can to live the life he's laid out for you. That's, those are words worth living. Now, I suppose we could stop here and skip over the next book. I mean, Isaiah is waiting in the wings, so can we get to him as quickly as possible? I'm really excited for next week. And especially since the book that we have to do in between, the one th thing holding us back is Song of Solomon? Come on, why spend any time at all? Now, admittedly, I'm not going to spend much, but it's deserving of more than nothing. And why do we Latter-day Saints seem to skip over it uh, almost invariably? Well, on the one hand, we do it on the, the good advice of Joseph Smith. Or do we? Because Joseph Smith, when he was working on the Joseph Smith translation, he's going through the Bible looking for places that need correction or emendation. And he gets to Song of Solomon and doesn't change a single verse. So, well, even the prophet wouldn't touch it. And on the top of the page, when they were working on Solomon, when it got to Song of Solomon, it simply said, the songs of Solomon are not inspired writings. That's it. So, yeah, let's take the prophet for his word and just leave it at that. If it's not inspired anyway, then why, why spend time? Well, that begs the question, then why is it in the book at all? Why is it in the Bible? Now, if Joseph Smith's language wasn't strong enough, then other people quote Bruce R. McConkie. And Elder McConkie, in a classic talk, he was talking, it was called The Bible, A Sealed Book. And it's a great, a great, a great talk. He actually even goes through, I think some of it is tongue-in-cheek. He was speaking to church educators, and so he knew his audience would know the scriptures and get a kick out of, because he kind of goes chapter by, or book by book in the, in the Bible and sort of ranks them. He's like, ah, Genesis is the book of books, and Exodus is a close second. It's amazing. But then he kind of makes fun of some other ones. He's like, oh, Job is for people that like the book of Job which I'm like, uh, that's me. I love the book of Job. I hope that we enjoyed our, our lesson on that a couple, a couple weeks ago. But uh, he, he has some fun with it and says some things about the New Testament Gospels and which ones are more, more worth reading and same with the letters and kind of rank some of those. It's fascinating, uh, his approach on things. But when he gets to the Song of Solomon, he simply says, it's biblical trash. Yikes. And that sticks in the heads of many a Latter-day Saint to go, okay, Joseph said it wasn't inspired, and, and Bruce R. McConkie said it's biblical trash. So let's take out the trash. Literally, can we take it out of our scriptures? Well, others throughout history have suggested similar things, while others still have pushed back and said absolutely not. Uh, people tend to have a love-hate relationship with Song of Solomon. And people who hate it do so for fairly obvious reasons. Number one, God is never mentioned in it. Uh, number two, it's, it's kind of erotic in some points uh, because it's love poetry. And that's it. And so if you were to stumble across love letters between husband and wife that weren't meant for gener general consumption, then yeah, it might get beyond what we would talk about in in mixed company or in among our children. So if you want to avoid Song of Solomon entirely, then be my guest. But those who have loved Song of Solomon, some have even said it's the greatest book in scripture. I wouldn't go that far. But 
the reason they value it, and ostensibly the reason it was kept in the canon to begin with, is what if it's allegorical? What if it's meant to be taken figuratively? I mean, it can be taken literally also. If it's husband and wife writing love poetry to each other, great. Uh, I hope that they obviously love each other a lot. But what if it's meant to help us see how God and Israel are supposed to love each other as husband and wife? Right? If God and Israel are sealed and that's a chosen people, my peculiar treasure... We'll see that embodied, acted out in the story of Hosea, of Hosea uh, in the Minor Prophets. We'll see it used as a metaphor by Jeremiah and by Isaiah. So God marrying Israel, that's, that's good. Or in the New Testament, when Paul says to the Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. Hmm, there's the marriage also. God marrying Israel in the Old Testament is the equivalent of Christ marrying the church in the New Testament. Okay? And so if, if that's the analogy we're supposed to be following anyway, and here we have some beautiful love poetry from a husband to a wife and from a wife to a husband, then this is how much God cares about us. And this is how much we're supposed to love God. Hmm, that's beautiful. And in most places it is. It's just that in places where it gets a little too specific with husband and wife, it's like, Ugh, God doesn't love us that way and I'm not supposed to love him that way either. So that's where I would draw the line personally. Uh, but overall, from a purely historical perspective, it is a great example of ancient love poetry. So if you're just looking for genres of ancient literature, here's one of the best examples you'll find. And if you can look past, well, I'll put it this way. I love the verse in Titus in the New Testament where Paul tells Titus that to the pure, all things are pure. And if you can keep that in mind as you read Song of Solomon, you'll find some benefit. If you'll maintain your own purity in every verse and give the canonizers the benefit of the doubt, does this teach me anything about God's love for his people and my love for God? Then it may be worth studying. Now again, Elder McConkie didn't think so, uh, and you can get a sense of that when you look at the chapter headings. They are the shortest, tersest chapter headings you'll see anywhere in Scripture. None of them are longer than one sentence. And the longest sentence he gives is only nine words. It's like Elder McConkie is like, can we get through this quick? Because I want to go on to, to Isaiah. That deserves, I mean, the chapter headings in Isaiah are, are amazing. And again, Elder McConkie wrote all these chapter headings. But chapter one, the poet sings of love and devotion. Chapter two, beloved ones are praised and described. Chapter 3, a love song concerning Solomon is presented. Chapter 4, a song describes the beauty of the poet's beloved. Chapter 5, the song of love and affection continues. Chapter 6, the song of love continues. Chapter 7, the song of love continues. Can you get a sense that Elder McConkie was impatient? Like, can we be done with this thing already? <sighs> Fine, one last chapter. Chapter 8, many waters cannot quench love but boy, do I want to quench my time spent in this song of love. So can we move on to Isaiah chapter 1? <sighs> yes, and next week we will. But if I can just give you a handful of verses worth savoring in the Song of Solomon, here's a few. And with the pure, all things are pure. Verse 1 of chapter 1, 
the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And that's where we get the two alternate titles for this book. And the King James translators called it the Song of Solomon, since it was attributed to him. Though, again, we don't know for sure that he's the one that wrote it. There's no solid evidence that he wrote this. And then the other title, which most modern translations prefer, the Song of Songs. And by Song of Songs, they're, they're giving you the superlative, like we see with God of Gods and Lord of Lords and King of Kings and Holy of Holies. If you want love poetry, if you want a love song, then this is the song of all love songs. Uh, Solomon and, and his beloved. And we do see from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, that Solomon spake 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. So if he wrote that many, then I guess it is possible that he wrote this one too. Though we don't have the other <laughs> 1,004. Uh, same thing with the proverbs. If, we, if he spake 3,000 of them, then we just got the Cliff Notes version in the 31 chapters that we just studied. But here's a, here's a verse worth studying. Chapter 1, verse 7. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Again, this is love poetry. And we could leave it at that with husband and wife. And she's just wondering, where, where are you? Where are you going to be at noon when you're out with the, the, the flocks? Oh, this good shepherd, high noon, you're probably not going to be walking somewhere because it's going to be so hot. So where would you rest? Behind, besides still waters, I'm sure. But can you tell me where those still waters would be? Because I'd love to happen to be there myself, just so I could catch a glimpse of you and maybe share in the noonday meal. There's something beautiful about that, of wanting to know where your companion is at all times because you want to be with them. Now, like I said, if we leave it at love poetry, then in, she misses him. And what are you doing on your lunch break? Can I meet you somewhere? And that's, that's a beautiful thought. I, I think I said this in a previous lesson, that when I was in the South, in Tennessee, in Nashville, in a country music center of the world, and also really the Christian music center of the world, and there's a lot of overlap between those two genres, literally, and sometimes in the case of the single song, and I have listened to some songs on the Christian music station that you know it's a love song about God. But then I've sometimes heard the exact same song and they change a few lyrics and it's on the Christian, or it's on the, the, the pop station. And you know it's a, a song about husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend and they love each other. And I remember the first time that hit me, I'm like, oh, I see what you did there. Okay, you're uh, speaking to two different audiences through two different genres, but it's the same basic stuff. It's just a matter of who loves who in this particular version. To stick with the pop version of Song of Solomon 1 verse 7, uh, it's, I hope that our marriages and our relationships can be like that. And we leave little love notes and we want to know how people are doing and we check in during the day and can I... Can I sneak over for a, a midday date on your lunch break just to let you know that I'm thinking of you? No matter how long your marriage has been, those are things you probably did when you were dating. And a good marriage is, is a, just a long date, right? Uh, people would joke with President McKay, David O. McKay and Emma Ray McKay, a match made in heaven. 
and they had a little apartment in the Hotel Utah, and people would call their apartment the honeymoon suite. And at one point, somebody asked, like, Is that, isn't that weird? I mean, you guys have been married for like 70 years, and you call your apartment the honeymoon suite? And President McKay just laughed and said, well, yeah. I mean, if you're going to be married forever, then 70 years isn't bad for a honeymoon. Well, that means it should be courtship through your entire marriage. And so on the pop side of the station, that's a great verse for marriages and relationships. But on the Christian music station, I think that's beautiful too. Father, where can I find you? What places can I go to be in touch with the Spirit? Where can I find the Lord? I mean, that's what the Psalms were for the last three weeks. We were looking for him. We were singing of him and to him and with him. And that was beautiful. The love we ought to feel for him and the love that we can feel from him. He knows where we are and wants to be with us all the time. That's why he keeps nudging us to do spiritual things so the spirit can come. Now, how about this one? In verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12, While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. In the, on the pop station, that is oh, perfume and ointment. And I'm trying to smell as good as I can for him. And he's trying to smell as good as he can for me. And this spouse of mine, he's my king. And he's sitting before me and cologne and perfume are mingling in the air. How's that? But on the Christian station... This verse is a beautiful description of when Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus, breaks open her alabaster box and pulls out her full pound of spikenard, same beautifully smelling ointment, and anoints Jesus' head before his crucifixion. It's the time when Judas gets angry and do you have to understand how much that is worth and how much that could have done for people, maybe even me? No. Come on, Judas. What she's done for me, this is a beautiful thing. This is out of her love and knowing where I'm headed. And she'll be remembered for this from this day on. Can you imagine the smell in that room we talk about the holy anointing oil and the, the, the perfumes and oils and, and resins and things that were part of the altar of incense in the tabernacle of Moses and in the temple of Solomon, giving a sweet savor to God. Coming into the tabernacle or the temple would have been a feast for every sense. And the sights and the sounds and the smells. And so to be in that room as they were preparing, as Mary was preparing Jesus for his death. This is the flip side of what they did at the garden tomb as they were coming to try to anoint the body of the, of the Lord that they loved and missed. I do see a hint toward that here in Song of Solomon. And it's an act of true self-sacrificing love not counting the cost, not worrying about the 300 pence that it was worth. I remember once buying something for my wife when we were early on in our marriage, and, and we both knew, I knew I couldn't afford it, but I just wanted to give her something that, that meant something. 
And she opened it on Christmas and was blown away by its beauty and by its cost. And she immediately said, this is the nicest thing you've ever done. And we're taking it back as fast as we can. Uh, and we actually joked at the time because we did. Yes, we took it back. I was really relieved, actually. And she, so is she. But we joked like, man, we should do that every year. We should buy each other what we would want to give each other if we could afford it. And it's like, yeah, that's how much I value you. There's something about that self-sacrificing love. I know it costs a fortune more than I can make, but you're more than you're worth more to me than anything. And I just want you to know that. And that was Mary to Jesus. That is husband and wife here to each other in Song of Solomon. Uh, talk about real self-sacrificing love without counting costs. That's what, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Keep going. Uh, this one's worth seeing. Just a phrase in chapter 2, verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And ever since, those, by the Christian world, those are names associated with Jesus Christ. Despite the, the femininity of, what, of the, what they're sounding like with flowers, a rose and a, and a lily, Jesus is the rose of Sharon. I think of a, a blood-red rose versus a white lily and what Jesus does to go from one to the other. His white robes stained with his red blood in Gethsemane but also our scarlet sins becoming white as snow because of him. Oh, rose and lily, yes, that is Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 3, As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. On the Christian music station, think of the tree of life whose fruit is sweet above all that is sweet. And if it is manifesting the love of God, then in this love poetry, rejoice in the fruit of, that God is willing to give you. In chapter 2, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Oh, mine and his, these possessive pronouns, that's covenant relationship. And if I have a covenant with Christ, oh, who's feeding among the lilies, consider the lilies of the field. And Christ provides for them all. And if I can come unto him, he will provide for me because I'm his. And he's mine. And that's a relationship that, that's meant to last forever. Turn to chapter 3. And in verse 2 and 3, beautiful passage, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets, and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loveth? This goes back to what we saw earlier of where are you going to be eating the noon meal, and what, where can I find the flocks and herds that you're guiding because the sheep all look the same from the distance, but I don't want to go find some other shepherd I don't want to spend time with. I want to go with, be with you. And here she is again searching for him everywhere she can, into the broad ways and the narrow pa passages, and I will seek him whom my soul loveth. Do we? How much do we long to be with the Lord? How desperately do we seek the Spirit and live in such a way that he can accompany us? And if we can't find him, do we go search for the watchmen? That's the word we usually associate with prophets. 
Do we seek the watchman who've been watching us and you're, you're feeling far from him, aren't you? Well, let me give you some counsel as we ask, have you seen who my Lord loveth? And watchmen on the tower, oh yes, they know just where he is and the best possible ways to find him. So turn to them and you'll find him. Or chapter three, verse six, who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Again, on the pop station, this is just a, a woman looking for her husband and knowing that he smells good to her. But on the Christian station, what does myrrh and frankincense mean to you? What do they make you think of? The gifts the wise men brought to the baby Jesus? Or coming out of the wilderness? That's the church coming out of apostasy. Or the pillars of smoke? That's cloud of smoke and pillar of fire. He's leading the way to the promised land. Who is this? Do we sense that the Savior is there before us? Or chapter 4, verse 7. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Now, it's one thing to associate that with a spouse, and I think we should. Not looking for blemishes, but in fact looking past them. They, we know that they're there. But to be able to, what's the old saying? Before your marriage, keep both eyes wide open, and after your marriage, keep them half closed. Uh, at least to the, the blemishes, the spots that are part of mortal experience for us all. I am grateful that my wife doesn't fixate on my spots. There's plenty for her to see. But to be able to say, thou art all fair, my love, <laughs> no spot in you. I think there's something, a, a beautiful contrary to prove or to balance here of knowing that our partner isn't perfect. But keeping them on the pedestal that we placed them on when we first fell in love. And if that's the pop station, the Christian station's even better. Because that's when we can say with eyes still fully wide open. As we look at the Lord, he is all fair. And there is no spot in him. And in fact, if we can stay sealed to him, the day will come where he can say the same of us. Where he has washed away every sin until no spot remains. The last one at least the last, in my opinion, worth spending some time on, is in chapter 6, verse 10. And here we save the best for last. It's one that's so important that it shows up three times in the Doctrine and Covenants. So this is definitely not biblical trash. It show, one of those places, in fact, is the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. So our initial prayer of dedication of this dispensation, quote, Song of Solomon? Hmm. Okay. I mean, Joseph may have acknowledged that it wasn't inspired writing, but in a way it had an inspiring phrase. One that must have stuck with him because it came up several more times as the Lord spoke to him. Song of Solomon 6 verse 10 says, Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? Now, if I'm singing to my wife on the pop station, I think two out of three will suffice. And I'll tell my wife that she is fair as the moon. Just that beautiful, gentle moonlight shining down. And that she's clear as the sun. She brightens my day and illuminates my life. I don't know if I would leave a love note for her saying, Honey, you are terrible as an army with banners. <laughs> I'm not sure how she'd take that one. But if we do see it as 
awe-inspiring. And just them all marching forward and the banners flowing and waving in the breeze. And oh, it's just, it's so moving. It's a parade in front of me. And that's how you make me feel. Again, we'd use a different word for terrible at least. Awe-inspiring would be a little bit better on the love note. But can you see now why it would appear in the Doctrine and Covenants? Because if we replace the Christian or the pop station for the Christian station, then who's the bride? Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. This is the church. And she's coming. A couple of what we saw earlier about him coming out of the wilderness. Well, Revelation 12 talks about the church coming forth out of the wilderness as a woman. Uh, a beautiful woman ready to raise her child, the kingdom of God on the earth. And no wonder in the Doctrine and Covenants, when it speaks of the coming forth of the restored church and the restored gospel, this is a woman coming out of the wilderness. And how does she look? Oh, breathtaking. Especially to the Lord who has been trying to prepare the world for her so that she can then prepare the world for his coming. The marriage of the Lamb of God. The ten virgins are trying to prepare. You understand there's so much symbolism throughout Scripture about the second coming being a marriage. That's how the book of Revelation ends. And so notice these three verses in the Doctrine and Covenants. First comes early on. Section 5, verse 14. Even before the church has been officially restored, we're talking about its coming forth. In this, the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness. And how does she look as she's coming? Clear as the moon and fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. Thank you, Song of Solomon. Next is Doctrine and Covenants 105. And this is part of Zion's camp. When they get to Missouri, ready to redeem Zion, and then the Lord pulls them back and says, actually, you're not quite ready yet. Uh, if we're going to build Zion and redeem Zion, that's second coming consummation. And yeah, you're not ready for that because you're not, you don't look quite as good as I know you, you want to for our wedding day. So instead, he says, first, let my army become very great and let it be sanctified before me that it may become fair as the sun and clear as the moon and that her banners may be terrible unto all nations. Thank you once again, Song of Solomon. And then the grand finale, the masterpiece, as the Kirtland Temple is being dedicated. And here's the house of the Lord. This is our wedding gift <laughs> to our husband. The church, the bride, is, she's the one that built the house. <laughs> and the husband can now move in to be there with her. And what's this inspired prayer say? that thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. If for no other reason it's worth holding on to this ancient Israelite love poetry just to provide the final dispensation with a metaphor worth holding on to, and that we, as the Bride of Christ, whom he loves and for whom he gave his life, can we prepare for that wedding day by becoming a little bit more fair and living according to light that's a little more clear and becoming a far more awe-inspiring army of Israel 
ready to prepare the earth for the coming of her king. I am grateful for the Song of Solomon, at least <laughs> what it gives us there. And it's worth becoming that. My friends, we can find beauty and goodness and truth everywhere we look, if we have the eyes to see. And I pray that this week we have seen it in the words of wisdom in Proverbs, and even in the <laughs> words of pessimism and vanity of vanities in the book of Ecclesiastes. And yes, mingled among the love poetry in this Song of Songs. What's our grand takeaway? The, 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 the sum of the matter? Well, it's what we've learned. That real joy and happiness and purpose and meaning in life doesn't come from wine, women, and song. It doesn't come from hedonism or materialism or commercialism or intellectualism. It comes from, first, finding God and allowing God to provide us with all the words of wisdom we'll ever need. Second, it comes in finding purpose and meaning in mortality, knowing that mortality is not all we get and that we are meant to spend this time preparing to meet God. And third, from Song of Solomon, that it's a God who loves us and that we should love as well. I'm grateful for the wisdom literature that we've spent the last, what, five weeks on. That if we can endure our suffering alongside Job, if we can praise God from whom all blessings flow, if we can seek wisdom like buried treasure and hold on and embrace it, if we can see meaning to get past vanity and see purpose in our, in our life, and if we can come to love a God who loves us, then this literature proved its point and served its purpose. It gave us wisdom to live by. And as Jacob tells us so clearly, Oh, be wise. What can I say more? <laughs>